This Week in Retronauts, what's the deal with relevance? Hi, everyone, and welcome to this latest episode of A Podcast About Nothing. It's episode 29. 29, yeah. It's gold, Jerry. It's 29, episode 29 of Retronauts, but we're in the fourth season, whatever that means. I don't know. The the numeration is confusing, and I don't understand it either. That's great. Hi, I love you. I'm Jeremy (laughs) Parrish, the host of this episode, alternating with... Robert Wayne Mackey and Whoa. that's that's my name when I start killing that's people. That's a serial killer name. Yeah. <clears throat> and also with with us here this week in the studio is none other than IGN's Jose Otero. What's Yay. going on, man? It's like old time one up, almost reunited. I know, reunited. Oh, I should have should have gotten Marty. In He's here. in France right now. Oh, <laughs> screw him. Yeah. Is he is he there on his own money or something? <clears throat> I think he's doing something else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Boy, writing the great American novel. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> He's got the beard for it. He yeah, the, <laughs> he does. He's a very literary beard. He is the yes. lost generation. Mm-hmm. So this week, uh, the episode topic is, like I said, what's the deal with relevance? So the idea behind this episode is to just kind of look at the challenge that, that video games have had over the years remaining relevant as the medium changes and audiences change and tastes change. Um, you know, what was really popular five years ago may not be a big deal now. Uh, it's it's a fickle world. It's a fickle market, and uh, you know it's it's hard to bottle lightning, and it's it's hard for people to make a hit twice. Um, following up on a hit has always been tricky, and uh, I think the more the medium evolves and the more complicated video games become, uh, the more difficult it becomes to pull that off. So that's why you don't see things like Mega Man games anymore and why Castlevania is kind of like not really Castlevania anymore. Blah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's the, that's Castlevania is very blah. <laughs> yeah. and, and what happened to Ultima? Where'd it go? It couldn't even cut it as a social game. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, this week we we're talking about why the brands and properties that you loved when you were young no longer exist or exist in horrible mutant forms or just, you know, like they don't seem to have any support, any, any love. I uh, when you when you first told me about this topic, it actually uh, blew me away for a second because I was like, you know, I guess we, it's true. I it never occurred to me that I don't spend enough time thinking about how video games are in fact a product of their time and very much influenced by the time and the trend. Um, and I just kind of don't. I guess it, it never occurred to me to look at them that way. And I guess that's true of film and that's true of books and that's true of so many other things. Um, but yeah, some just don't quite make it into the future. So I think the problem that video games have right now, at least, is that they haven't been around long enough to really integrate themselves into pop culture. Uh, you know, like books and films very much reflect the the times, like you said. But video games do that to a certain degree. I mean, you know, you saw an uptick in military games after 9-11, for instance. But really, I feel like video games are more reactive to technology and uh, industry trends. Absolutely. Whereas literature, like, yeah, I mean, there are trends in writing. Uh, You saw a lot of the kind of David Foster Wallace type of books in the, you know, the the turn of the millennium. But by and large, it's more of a reflection of kind of where the world is right now. Video games haven't reached that point. So – uh, maybe that's that's part of the problem, but but because it is this kind of uh, this medium that is 
in technical terms, evolving rapidly and changing rapidly. Uh, and you know, game design reflects that more than what's happening outside of that. Um, I think it's a it's a medium that's very quick to eat its young and just kind of <laughs> cut a, cut itself off and and forget about the past. Well, it's very business led in a lot of ways, right? I mean, that could be part of the reason. But we'll, I mean, we can get to that at some point, right? In terms of <laughs> no, the, I mean, the I think making and the decisions. I think that's fair. You look at at things like literature and film and music, and all of those media uh, mediums had kind of their time to evolve artistically. Uh, you know, the decades before they really became corporatized in the mm-hmm. like the late 20th century. Um, video games were born into a corporate world. Yep. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, Atari launched was a, a, a success, and within two years they were bought up by uh, by Time Warner or Warner Communications, I guess, at the time. Yep. Um, so, like, right from the very outset, video games were – Massive, like yep. they had to be huge, and they were hit driven, a hit driven business. Yeah, and that's why you right away had the video game crash, and it seemed like they were just going to be a fad. Um, so, you know, I don't think that's necessarily the ideal environment for cultivating <clears throat> artistic creativity and uh, integrity. Uh, so, in, in a way, like any time a video game turns out to be like a creative success or something daring and risk taking and bold. Uh, it's kind of a little miracle. Yeah, it's like a little it precious baby that we should cherish and, and hold closely because it needs to be nurtured. Yeah. And and then after it's nurtured, it will be commoditized and turned into a franchise. And we'll see that same precious baby year after year on a, on a regular schedule every every November. Yeah. Well, and there are some companies that uh, that sort of figure figure it out and kind of hang on to artistic, I think, integrity despite. And they're very few. Uh, but hang on to the name one. Yeah, <laughs> I, uh, that could be tough. I mean, I think to some degree, yes and no. And I don't. I almost don't want to say this, but I think it applies. I think Nintendo can. I think in some hmm. cases with Mario games, there is sort of artistic integrity or a way to sort of streamline something. Sometimes that comes at the expense, though, of the people who really care about it. But others, some other times, I think it is successful. I, I and think we can talk true. about that later. I think that's true to a degree. I think also Nintendo has commoditized fun. Um, which is something that most publishers don't really do. Like they're very business uh, oriented, but because the only business they're in, uh, unlike the other console manufacturers, is video games, like they have to double down on making yeah. things fun and approachable. So it's almost like uh, you know, like a Disneyland kind of thing, like the happiest place on earth. But then you have the the guys in the gallery in the back making you know nine dollars an hour cleaning dishes for the, the restaurants <laughs> of the future or whatever. Sure. Yeah. I'm sure we could think of a few more, but I don't want to waste yeah, too I mean, much time I, on that. I don't want to be too yeah. cynical about this. Like of course. people don't get into making video games because they hate video games and want to make crappy video games. They get into making video games because they love the medium. Exactly. They want to create something fun. When when that fails, it's probably not their fault. It's probably bad management, bad direction. Like the the average dude on the street making, uh, you know, sixty k to work ninety hours a week for twelve months straight and and basically destroy his family uh, for a video game that's going to be you know like a six point five on the the video game Richter scale like it's uh, like you feel bad for those guys mm-hmm. it's not their fault don't blame them mm. they're doing their best um, but at the same time there is that kind of task that. The creative leaders have the the publishers, the presidents, the producers, the executives. Like they have to stay on top of things and say, what direction does this go? 
and they need the feedback from their creators to say, you know, like let's keep it, you know, relevant. Let's let's make sure our franchise, our series remains something that people want to play. And that's uh that's no easy task and that's why we see so many franchises and series fall by the wayside. And mm. you know, at this point um video games are littered with the corpses of uh of failed mascots. It's like failed states, but um, it's like, like Croc. What are we talking it's about? It's a compost heap with Croc and uh, Punky <laughs> Skunk, mean, and those those see there. There's a difference. We're not talking here about games that struggled right out of the gate. We're mm. talking about like something that was big once, right. and then ceased to be big. Uh, as I get older and I read like biographies of creative types, I find that it's very likely that some people only really have one good idea. So trying to iterate on that and trying to make more out of it is often impossible. Like. This is this is uh, the liter- the literary world, but like Joseph Heller wrote Catch Twenty Two, and his famous quote was like, "People always ask me when am I going to write a book that's better than Catch Twenty Two," and he's like, "Well, no one else is." So uh, that that was his that was his like response to it. it's like sometimes you make something that's awesome and you can never top yourself. Like I used to love Suda Fifty One until I realized like oh he only had he put all of his best ideas in this one game and the rest has been you know coasting on the weirdness of like Killer Seven right. in my opinion at least like mm-hmm. you can disagree with that if you want but I was like he had that idea and that was fine but now he's out of ideas. Yeah, video games have very few Harper Lees. Oh, yeah, that's true. Um, I mean, there's what Keita Takahashi, who created uh, uh, Katamari Damacy, uh, Fumito Ueda, probably. He made um, two games. Yeah, he's he's still struggling with that. No, like Takahashi actually dropped the mic. Like they they said, make some sequels to Katamari Damacy, and he was like, I'll do one. Yeah, okay, I'm done with this. This isn't what I want to do. So he stepped back. He said, like I've made my my really creative, fun video game, and now I want to do something else. Then he made, like, playgrounds and art installations yeah. where, like, Katamari was always, like, an interactive art exhibit almost with the score attached and, like, mm-hmm. you know, rules attached to it. But um, it yeah. seems like that fits his his strange hippie lifestyle better. Well, and his next game did, too, uh, Nobi Nobi Boy, yeah. I think, also was just an example of just a playground and not necessarily structure or, like, a really cool idea behind a score. Yeah, that was definitely, like, yeah. just an art exhibit. I mean, oh, sold as a game, but yeah. it was still cool for what And a social did. project, right? Yeah. There, there was Girl who was trying to reach out to the stars. Right, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I think that's that's totally I think that's totally valid. Um, and I don't begrudge anyone for sticking around after they've had their good ideas. Some people have lots of good ideas. Like Shigeru Miyamoto has had a lot of really good ideas through the years. And not all of those are iterative on each other. I mean, yeah, yeah Super Mario Brothers is an iteration on Donkey Kong. But what about The Legend of Zelda? What's that? What about Pikmin? Like that's, you know, something totally different. There's also uh, there's also the chance that in many cases creative types in this industry the tools often revolve far beyond their abilities or they're not willing to keep up with the tools. So in the case of like I think certain Capcom composers that they dug up were like, do you want to work on Shovel Knight or whatever? And they're like, oh, we assumed that no one wanted us anymore. We assumed that we couldn't do this anymore wow. just because the technology changed and we didn't keep up with it. But now now it's clear that like this is timeless in a way. So yeah, I mean that's um, that's something that's affected film as well. You know, uh, I was just reading yesterday an anecdote about how uh, when Steven Spielberg saw the CG dinosaurs in Jurassic Park, he looked at Phil Tippett, the uh, the motion capture artist, and said, "You're out of a job." And Tippett said, "You mean extinct?" But um, <laughs> um, <clears throat> but I mean, you know that that is something that that affects people who work with something that can be replaced or, or substituted with technology. Mm-hmm. Would have to deal with growing technology. And that is a big part of it because as technology changes, kind of our expectations change and the nature of, of, you know, with video games, the nature of the games and the game worlds we look at change. Yeah, well, and the budgets change. I mean, let's that's honestly part of what kills some of these, like, games that were maybe 
you know, a big business in their time. And then as the budgets get bigger, as the projects get bigger, as, you know, the idea has to get bigger, I mean, that has to have an influence on what's happening behind the scenes with these things. Yeah, I mean, we talked about this a little bit with uh, the last episode talking about John Romero. Yeah. And I, I said, you know, I think he's a guy whose time was the 90s. Like, that was the place for his ideas to be fresh and inventive. And I can't, I can't look down on him if, you know, 20 years later – Maybe his ideas seem old because he 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 played you know he made his mark he played his role and like Godspeed with whatever he does next uh, I don't I don't think there's I don't think it's incumbent on him to continue to be at the forefront of of video game revolution like it's you know it's a collaborative medium it's okay for other people to step in and and come up with new ideas I think it would be great if he could keep just building on his same ideas I mean you look at musicians. Like Eric Clapton was amazing in the 60s and then just kind of kept doing the same thing until he turned into soft rock dad. <laughs> um, and, you know, if he had just kept making – like re- re- redoing cream music or Derek and the Dominoes, I don't think that would be necessarily a bad thing. Uh, I mean how many albums has U2 released that sound exactly like The Unforgettable Fire or uh, or Rattle and Hum or whatever? Like that's what they do. They keep making that same album over and over again. And they make billions of dollars from it. So Godspeed, you too. Mm-hmm. I think I think it would be healthy for the games industry to have that perspective and to let people, you know, work within the same frameworks, uh, but you know, come up with new and fresh ideas within that framework. But I feel like there is this drive for either, uh, like I said before, commoditization, where everything is just rubber stamped every year. It's the same thing over and over with a little bit of fine tuning. Or else to come up with something radically new and different. Like there's not really that kind of middle ground for um, building on concepts and, and changing them and, and evolving them within that 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 context. And uh, it's a little, I don't know. Maybe I'm being overly dramatic, but I think there was that that area that room for innovation, and we'll talk about it in the move from 2D to 3D, which everything went through growing pains. But there was the idea that like no, no, every game is in 3D now. We can't do 2D anymore. And I'm sure that also pushed people away. Like I make 2D games. Like well, learn to make a 3D game or get the hell out because that's what games are now. That's basically mm-hmm. like there was that weird change in the industry that eventually now all the most popular games are 2D mobile games. So we're, yeah. we're back to 2D again, except for Minecraft. Sure. I almost wonder if some of which this... Which is a PS1 uh, game on a huge scale. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I wonder if some of this uh, sort of... I wonder if the indie scene has the same struggles because I feel like those guys have really, really sharp and, and creative ideas, but they're also trying to eat and they're yeah. also trying to like make a game work within a reasonable budget and get it out the door and then hope that it does well enough. Um, I don't know. I guess I'm trying to just make the point. I wonder if it affects them as well to some Yeah, I degree. mean the, the indie scene is I think in the middle of kind of its growing pains right now and it's basically becoming a microcosm of the bigger games industry. Yeah. Um, Bob, I know you recently wrote about this on US Gamer, um, but also if you read uh, Jeff Vogel's blog, Jeff runs um, Spiderweb Software. He's been making self-published Macintosh RPGs since the '90s. He mm-hmm. started with the uh, the Exile series, which became Avernum, and he, now he has you know some kind of very similar spinoffs. But it's all these like 1993 vintage Ultima esque. Uh, RPGs, and he keeps you know improving on them incrementally each time. But like his latest game looks pretty much like you know um, one of those kickstarted games by Black Isle or whatever, not hmm. Black Isle Obsidian. Um, it's it's very much in that same vein. Like the difference is you know it's not a comeback for him. He's been here all along, and so he has this really interesting perspective on 
how the indie market has evolved and changed. And for a while, like it was like all these newcomers suddenly succeeding at what he'd been doing for decades. And so there was this expectation on him to sort of play along. And now that market is collapsing and people aren't able to follow up. I mean, he just wrote a blog post recently about how no one is really able to replicate an indie success. Like, You'll have a game like Fez. Well, that's kind of its own weird yeah. case, but yeah, but you know, saying, like um, <laughs> you know, like Super Meat Boy. Actually, that's an exception too because uh, yeah. Binding of Isaac is really successful. And we'll see but, what happens with uh, Yacht Club games after Shovel Knight. Yeah, I'm really but, curious about that. But by and large, those are the exceptions. There of are course. there are lots and lots and lots of indie games that are like breakout hits, and then what's next? Mm-hmm. Help when like Ken Levine pulls up in his Lamborghini and honks the horn at the indie party, like, "Hey guys, I'm here too. Here's my indie game." It's like you're not indie. Get out of here. It's like there's but that I mean, competition. Yeah. What, as well. what does indie even mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, there's there's definitely a constriction happening in that market now. So that's going to, I think, have the same impact on indie games as we've seen with package games. That's just the nature of the business because it is a business. Mm. Anyway, that's all kind of high minded, I guess. Yep. So let's put this into some concrete details. Um, I think the the easiest place to start would be Pac-Man because that was kind of the first big international breakout hit for video games. Space Invaders was big in Japan. Pong was big here, but Pac-Man transcended boundaries. It was this massive hit. It defined genres. It defined the idea of character-based video games. It, it was you know it was a monster and it was a disease. It was Pac-Man it was a fever. fever. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> It was it was a yeah actually spread by a viral uh, convector, um, dirty joysticks. <laughs> <laughs> so you know like there were pop songs about it. Um, it was it was huge. And then what were the follow ups to Pac Man? Well, let's see. There was Miss Pac Man, which wasn't developed by the creators of Pac Man. That was actually an unlicensed mod for you know a modification kit for the hardware called Crazy Auto made by um, General Computing Corporation. Um, and it was so good that Midway, who was the American publisher for Pac-Man, saw it and said, wow, we're going to turn that into an actual Pac-Man game and call it Miss Pac-Man. And Namco wasn't happy about that. They've eventually learned to embrace it, probably because Miss Pac-Man is the best Pac-Man it game. Is. Well, it was, the, it was a great sequel for good reasons. I mean, it followed up on exactly how the first game needed to be followed up. Yeah. And it, it, I, every time I look at Miss Pac-Man, it always strikes me as bizarre that – the team that didn't make it, uh, excuse me, the team that made it had nothing to do with the first game. They just saw it and said, hey, we know how we can make this a little better. But the thing is they, they didn't really have the concept of teams at the time. If you, if you go back and read uh, Toru Iwatani's comments about mm. designing Pac-Man, it was just a project for him. Mm-hmm. And when he was done, he moved along to the next project. There was no like Pac-Man team that they could bring back together and bring the magic back. So I don't even know who worked on the official sequel to Pac-Man, which was Super Pac-Man, but they totally missed the mark. Like, that game was weird and confusing. Mm-hmm. It made all these 
bizarre variant rules for Pac-Man yeah. that didn't make well, any sense. Well, yeah, and stuff that at a glance you look at it and go like, why would someone think this was fun? Like, oh, so you want to eat the levers to open parts of the maze, and but you can accidentally trap yourself in <laughs> parts of the maze if you don't eat the other level to get out of that section you're in. I'm like, but then, who thought this was cool? Yeah, but then you turn into giant Pac-Man, except you're not actually giant. You're flying over the maze. And you can, what? And you, yeah. yeah, that is weird. All that the dots so are replaced weird. with apples, and most of the most of the maze is empty. Yeah. So I did not play this thing, and it's time. I have to. I have to put that out there. But I was in preparation for this. I was looking at it and just going at a glance immediately. If you were a fan of that first game, you said, "No, this yeah. is not. This does not look anything like yeah, what I, mean, I, I want." I played Pac Man a little bit. Miss Pac Man a lot. Uh, and then Super Pac-Man, I was just like, uh, "What's happening here?" And then you know, Midway did the same thing. They uh, you know, they they released the unofficial, unlicensed hack, Miss Pac-Man, and then they started releasing their own hacks. One of which was called New Exciting Pac-Man Plus, hmm. which was basically just a faster, meaner version of Pac-Man. And sometimes you ate Coke cans, but that was that was really it. Like whereas you know, Super Pac-Man went too far from the Pac-Man concept. New uh, Pac-Man Plus, it didn't go far enough. Like mm. it, you know, it's. Uh, didn't uh, the creator leave like shortly after Pac-Man because he was pissed off that he didn't make extra money for Pac-Man being a huge hit? I thought he I left d- like I shortly after. I know so. he made like Libble Rabble or whatever the hell that game was, but um, I thought he he left Namco. I never heard that he like was ticked off. I thought it was just kind of like a, um, just kind of an expected thing that he wouldn't make a lot of money because that's not really how, hmm. like. Royalties, I don't think, were really part of the Japanese. Game right. I, I mean, there was no precedent for them, but I think after seeing something like this take off worldwide, he was probably like, "Why am I still making my same wage? Like, I deserve something." I think there was some disgruntled uh, attitude toward that was well deserved. Also, uh, Super Pac-Man made its debut just like Mario Three did in The Wizard. It made its debut in a movie called Joysticks, <laughs> which uh, never watch it. It's terrible. It's not even fun to watch, ironically, but. It was an event. It was like come watch Joysticks and see Super Pac-Man. We're debuting it in this crappy movie. Mm. I've seen Joysticks. It <sighs> was a midnight movie, and it was pretty terrible. Yeah. Um, yeah, like – anyway, the point is that all of Pac-Man's sequels in the 80s, uh, they lacked the spark of the original Pac-Man. They lacked – you know, aside from Ms. Pac-Man, which was a hack, um, they just – they didn't have the magic that Pac-Man did. And maybe the problem is that it was just impossible to do anything with that concept besides make it a little better. Like they could have just kept improving on it the way that Ms. Pac-Man improved on it. But I think there was an expectation that things needed to be new. Um, yeah. You know, in the 70s, you would get like Pong and then you'd get like Pong doubles. You'd get Space Invaders and then you'd get Space Invaders with color. you get Zevius and then you'd get Super Zevius, which was exactly the same as the original Zevius except like faster. But I think by the time Pac-Man caught on, there started to be this idea that sequels need to be something new and need to be something different. But they could never really find what that new, different thing was for Pac-Man after Ms. Pac-Man. So, you know, by the time the late 80s rolled around and uh, what was it called? Pac-Mania came along. Like Pac-Man had been in a weird platform or like a a a proto Super Mario Brothers platformer called Pac-Man which had nothing to do with the core gameplay of Pac-Man. It was based more on the cartoon, and it was a character action game. Like, it, it was, you know, miles away. But you can eat a ghost once in a while, isn't that Pac-Man? You can, yeah. yeah they but that part of it. Yeah, I know. I'm being cynical. <laughs> like, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it just it didn't take everything away. It just wasn't really um, – it didn't have anything to do with Pac-Man. And the, mm. the variants that we did see, like Baby Pac-Man and Pac-Man Jr., 
weren't that fun. So, you know, by the time the late 80s rolled around and we got Pac-Mania, which was just an isometric Pac-Man, like, no one cared anymore. That game came and went like a, you know, a wet fart in church. Um, (laughs) It just, it didn't matter. Like, it didn't have any any bearing on anything, and it was totally irrelevant. Um, And then you saw, you know, other attempts to kind of build on the character side of Pac-Man with Pac-Man 2, The New Adventures. That uh, was a brazen move in America to call that Pac-Man 2 because in Japan it was just like – I think it was called like Hello Pac-Man or whatever. Pac-Man, you can interact with him. He was like a sim before the sims I guess. But yeah, they were were clearly thinking, all right, it's been a decade. Let's make a true sequel to Pac-Man that's like a point-and-click adventure where you don't control Pac-Man. That's like a new genre. It's so weird. Yeah, I mean... I, I, God, we, who made that game? Uh, it was Namco, wasn't it? I know, but I want to know, like, who is the guy? Oh, right, like, right. Where is he? That is such a cool <laughs> idea ahead of its time. Yeah, it was... It was um, Hard to play. Yeah, there were there were other games like that on uh, Super NES, Super Famicom, mm. N64, like... Uh, like Wonder Project. Right? Yes, Wonder Project. That's what I was going to say. I was mm. going to call Saber Marionette, which was a... Oh, because they both ended a J. Yeah. That's anime. Damn it. Damn it, 90s. You're so confusing. Um, yeah, and, and for whatever reason, they doubled down on that character design. Like when Pac-Man went into 3D, it was with character action games inspired by Super Mario 64. And like at that point, like it's just it's just a skin. Like it could have been it could have been a croc game. It yeah. could have been, you know. Weird. Super Magnetic Neo or something. Weirdly enough, I think Pac-Man World was insanely popular. Like people were buying it like they bought the Frogger PS1 game. Like mm. I worked at a game store and we just it was just flying off the shelves and it was always the greatest. I mean, just like I mean, I, I think I think it was the right time for that. Yeah. Because the people who grew up remembering Pac-Man all of a sudden had kids and they were like, oh, I'm gonna buy my kids a Pac-Man game. Oh, so that's why like Namco classic collections keep coming out. Like that was kind of the, the <laughs> oh yeah yeah where Namco that was the thing. Namco Museum was kind of like a we we did an episode entire episode on anthologies and. That was kind of like the the spark that set it all off, ah. and they they did time that really well. Suddenly, you know, PlayStation One had the technology to uh, recreate those games pretty close to arcade perfect, which had never been possible on uh, on the previous pl- home platforms, home consoles. So that was that was kind of its own separate thing. But like the actual sequels that they were making for Pac Man and Ms. Pac Man, like they were not very Pac Man ish, mm-hmm. and you didn't really see a good solid Pac-Man game until 2007, was it, with Pac-Man Championship Edition? Well, oh, yeah. Pac-Man yeah. Versus? Hang on, back up. Pac-Man oh, yeah, Versus. I like that one. Yeah, that was that I mean, was that, was, that, was, that was Pac-Man, though, just uh, with, with, like, a different play scheme. Yeah, I did, yeah. I did mention verse, Pac-Man Versus in my notes. Sorry about that. Yeah, no, it's okay. okay. That should be on the eShop. Yeah, so and, and that's but that, that wasn't, what became you know, Chase Mario. Chase that wasn't Mario even, pa- that uh, wasn't even a Namco game. That was Nintendo saying, what if we took your idea and made it more like our idea where it's fun to play together with other people. Yeah. Which Namco in all this time had never stopped to say, hey, what if we made Pac-Man like a competitive game? That's right. So it took someone else to step in and kind of offer that fresh perspective. Yep. But you yeah. are right that the the proper sequel to Pac-Man uh, and Miss Pac-Man is absolutely Pac-Man Championship Edition. And yeah. for very good reason, um, specifically just the idea of – the the thing that uh, in the original Pac-Man and Miss Pac-Man, uh, the thing that you go for, especially when you reach that high skill threshold, is the combo, right? Mm-hmm. Eat the pill, get every ghost, and then go through the maze and get everything. When you reach that point, it was like with Championship Edition, they sort of honed in on that and then said, okay – that's not the only thing we're going to hone in on. What about speed it up? What about change the mazes? What about have the fruit be a trigger that changes the maze depending on when you eat it and what happens on each side? 
so good. It is I good. can play that game nonstop. And yeah, I think, also, I think it's, um, oh, it's, not, it's not designed to steal your money, so it offers a threshold of forgiveness where if you are about to hit a ghost, you can do this like matrix move and like spin Pac-Man around and he can escape from them. So there, there's ways to avoid ghosts in the game. Well, I thought that was with the second one, right? Is that the, just the second one? Yeah, okay, that's the one I prefer, one. but yeah. um, that could be why I like it more. Oh, okay, yeah. got it, got it. Yeah. I, I love being able to not die within the first three levels of a Pac-Man game. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think it's interesting that it, it's one of those games where you can look at it and just say, oh, well, it's just Pac-Man with fancier graphics. But if you play it, you realize that there is this sort of underlying understanding of what made a good Pac-Man game. Absolutely. And an, and an amazing soundtrack, by the way. Oh, like, it's fantastic. I, I could just, well, some of it. I don't know. It's a little club music-y. You know, it's got that <laughs> dooms, dooms, it fits. Dooms, dooms, I mean, um, yeah. It, it just gives you that, like, arcade atmosphere. At least it does to me. I, I It just, I fall victim to that all the time and go, oh, this is how I want to remember the arcade days. So 25 or more <laughs> years after Pac-Man, they finally managed to come up with their own really good sequel. And since then, they haven't really built on that idea. They made a sequel to Pac-Man Championship Edition, and they still kind of kick around the idea in various forms, but they haven't really leveraged it. They haven't yeah. figured out how to make like keep going with that. Instead, Pac-Man is back to the character adventure games. Pac-Man The Ghostly Adventurers is... <sighs> Oh, it's God. like Pac-Man world, except, you know, it's kind of hearkening back to the early 80s, too, like Pac-Land, because it's a tie-in to a cartoon series. Well, it's, be kind of, it's, it it's become the poster child for just how clueless sort of that franchise is. I feel yeah. like every time I see a, a Pac-Man um, sort of gif or art, they show that game. And then they'll show, for example, like how Pac-Man looks in Smash Brothers, more the iconic like look that it should be. I don't know if Pac-Man will ever work as a character action game, by the way. I don't know if that's necessarily ever should be its thing. Uh, but for some weird reason, they keep making them. Yeah, and I mean, Pac-Man was the first. <laughs> Siri wants to talk uh, to you. Yeah, Siri's our fourth guest. <laughs> Pac-Man was kind of the first character action game, but that doesn't necessarily mean he translates into a Mario-style experience. That's right. And I, I think they, they, they look at other people's success and say, "Oh, that should be ours." Um, kind of like say a Sony looking at Game Boy and saying, "Oh, that should have been ours," and having trouble making that happen. Mm. Um, yeah, the character is actually more relevant to kids as a Smash Brothers edition than Ghostly Adventures. Like, I have a lot of nephews and, like, second cousins all in the kind of 5 to 11 range, and they're crazy about Smash Brothers. Like, they care about Mega Man. How did that happen? <laughs> that is yeah. weird. We'll, we'll talk about Pac-Man. that in a little bit. Oh, man. But, I mean, like, they know who Pac-Man is, not because of the Ghostly Adventures. They they know they have no idea what that is. Like, they don't care. It's not hitting its its demographic, but they know what Smash Brothers is, and they love Pac-Man. They think Pac-Man's really cool because of Smash Brothers. Did you put the original game in front of them like any good uncle should? I haven't gone that far yet. Mm. You have to. Yeah. You have to raise them right, man. I will, but you have to do it you know, a step at a time. Oh, that's true. That new cartoon is pretty hideous, though. <laughs> Every character looks like it comes from a different Hanna-Barbera show from, like, 1984. Like, it's just, like, so busy and overdone and... Uh, not it's not for me. It's not for a thirty-two-year-old man. But just passing by it, I'm like, Bleh. so for it's like champ- wacky razors. Yeah. yeah, for championship edition though, it wasn't part of what at least they told us in the press that uh, Iwatani worked on that game. That's right? what I heard. Like he was he was sort of back in the chair. Yeah, so. I don't know what his role was, but he was involved with it. Okay. Yeah, and I, I just I don't know because he wasn't involved in the rest of them as you pointed out earlier. Yeah, and, and uh, Taito did the same thing with Space Invaders around the same time. I, I actually I think that. Space Invaders Deluxe may have inspired Pac-Man Championship Edition. It had that same kind of neon effect and like, everything's crazy. Look, we're just going crazy. Hmm. Uh, so maybe that's where the idea came from. They kind of hit at the same time. No, yeah, Arkanoid. Right. I think, yeah. uh, how how Arkanoid space was, were those two? Um, I'd have to look up the exact dates. But I think Arkanoid DS was 
first, and it wasn't that crazy or wild and off the wall. Then uh, Space Invaders Deluxe, and then I think Pac-Man Championship Edition. What about Space Invaders Extreme? Uh, oh, yeah, Space Invaders that? Extreme. That's what I mean. Sorry. Okay, yeah. Deluxe like was Deluxe. something else. Yeah, okay. It was an old arcade sure. game. Okay. My mistake. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Do you think we kind of pinpointed the problem with Pac-Man, the, the difficulty of keeping it fresh? Or is there something that we're overlooking? Something um, that needs to be said? I think the idea was so well-realized originally that they didn't know where to bring it. I think we said that. But that's why DX and DX, was it called Plus Championship Edition uh, or something crazy something like that? Something crazy like that. That's why it works because it like just tweaks that formula maybe like 5%. Like there's not a lot of changes. I just think it's one of those games that came into being perfect. And we're going to see that with another franchise. We, you might not agree with me that it's just like we we don't know where to go from here. Like we have to use this character again, but we can't. Like, yeah. Are you, are are you I, talking about Metal Gear? No, I'm talking about Sonic. Oh, <laughs> oh okay. And I guess spoiler. I, and I, I guess that's. Uh, I I don't know if there is sort of a, a a new frontier for Pac-Man, so to speak. Like it's so interesting to look at like how. And you're going to talk about this later. Certain characters or certain character action games or certain games from different developers just eventually make that shift a lot better. But we'll save that for later. I'm going to spoil that. All right. So let's move on to talk about uh, some other old games from around Pac-Man's time, but much more complex games. We're looking at some RPGs now. Uh, The two formative RPGs, really, which were Ultima and Wizardry. Um, Of course, both were based on, to some degree, Dungeons & Dragons, but... Both were very, very different expressions of that concept. Wizardry was strictly a, a dungeon crawler, whereas Ultima was more of like an exploration, an exploration game uh, about you know the world around the dungeons, and you know the further the series went, the more it evolved. Ultima is actually an interesting counterpoint to Pac-Man because the first Ultima was not fully realized. Even the you know the the precursor to, to Ultima, Akalabeth, was not fully realized. Ultima two was not fully realized. Ultima 3 got a little closer. It, it started to kind of winnow out some of the weird added-on elements. No like, shooting uh, segments. Yeah, no, no outer space. Like It nah, started to weird. take out the science fiction. And, uh, you know, Ultima 3 started to give you, like, different races and different classes. And it had the uh, this huge world that you had to explore with a lot of mysterious elements where you, you were really kind of ex- expected to invest yourself in the world, talk to people in towns figure out how to travel around the world using mysterious moon gates and uh, figure out what the shrines that where you, you contribute money and learn new skills and stuff were for. Um, it was very mysterious and very large. And Ultima 4 built on that even more by adding this morality element and completely changing the, con- the concept of the game. It wasn't about beating the bad guy. It was be- about becoming a good guy. It was about becoming a paragon of virtue for the rest of the world. Like, with each iteration, Richard Garriott and his team at, at Origin just kept building on the series. And Ultima 5, 6, 7, uh, like, they just kept, you know, expanding. And the, the, the series started to branch out. You got um, action games like Ultima Underworld, Ultima Underworld, which was really kind of, before Doom, was a like a really uh, kind of action-oriented third or first-person uh, exploration combat game. But it was based in the Ultima world. Um, you had Ultima Online, which which really sort of took 
the concepts of Ultima and said, what if you lived in this world, not as the avatar necessarily, but as a person living this world, like you would have to make a living and you would also have to fight monsters. Um, it was, it was really interesting, but you know, eventually you kind of get to this point where it had to keep up with technology and it, it just didn't work out. Ultima nine, uh, is kind of an infamous disaster. Uh, like not a fun game under any circumstances, bad integration of 3d, uh, lots of jumping puzzles and things like that, like just stuff that didn't belong in Ultima. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ultima 10 was kind of meant to address those problems, I think, but it just never happened. Like it it, it fizzled out and died. And uh, Origin Systems pretty much dissolved under EA and uh, Ultima Online 2 never happened. Did it? I don't think so. Oh, yeah, no, I don't think no. so, no. <clears throat> um, and basically the core series fizzled out. Richard Garriott left and... Um, EA pretty much abandoned the franchise. They took the name Origin to use for their online system, but uh, Ultima itself, the only thing they've done with that in the past decade, 15 years, has been Ultima Forever, which was a, a social game. Like, the, the series couldn't even survive as a free-to-play social <laughs> game. That's <laughs> that's kind of a low bar to clear. Yeah. Mm. Your Flappy Bird clone can make more than Ultima Forever in this world, I guess. <laughs> Uh, not to not to get. A, I want to go back to Ultima, but I was thinking while you were talking that um, a similar case could be said for adventure games, where they were kind of just doing the same thing over and over again. And then when 3D came, no one really knew how to do that. And by that time, everyone was just like, "Oh, we're done with this kind of a game." But then Telltale came along and was like, "No, we can make these games approachable. We're following the LucasArts tradition by not immediately scaring you away from this kind of a game." Which makes me wonder why Sierra is the Sierra brand is coming back because those are not. As, I mean. Maybe for someone older than me, those were good experiences, but those games are pretty infamous for being just angry and hateful and just pure, just having pure malice towards you. I don't know. Um, well, you know, maybe they've learned their lesson. I mean, I don't think they're gonna, these games are going to be as hard as um, the original ones were, but uh, I don't know. I feel like that's another case of relevance that um, I'm not sure if that was part of your notes or not, or adventure games nope. in general. Okay, yeah. I just wanted to add it to the table. But I mean, so so in both cases, Ultima and Adventure Games, why do you think they failed to make the jump? Because even at the beginning, we saw, like, you can make good 3D adventure games. There was Grim Fandango, which I know you love. Yeah, it, yeah, it was. But I think the thing is the audience for those games were, was always very small. And 3D development was too much for one of those games to make back its make back what it, you know, development costs. So I think that was, like, practical concerns were also... An issue, and by that point, they had adventure games had crawled so far up into their own butts that only adventure games fan adventure game fans played them. So their their fan bases were shrinking. You know. So do you blame Mist for the death of the adventure game? I blame. Hmm. I blame Sierra. Frankly, (laughs) they made it and they killed it, essentially. And I know, like, we probably have a lot of Sierra fans, and I'm sorry, I don't like their kind of game. They 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 did make some good games. They did make some games that weren't evil. But they were made for a particular time and place, as these a lot of these games that we're talking about are, where it's like, I'm going to buy this game, I'm going to play it for two months, I'm going to try every solution, I'm going to rub everything against everything, I'm going to see every death, and I'm going to walk out of this, like, a season later, like, a man or something like that. Just, like, my, tri- my trial by fire. I'm sorry. No, it's <laughs> <Just> okay. Um, <laughs> no one responded. I was like, was that too far? <laughs> oh, it was, good. It, was okay. a good, it was a good final poem. Going back to Ultima, it is, it is one of those kind of rare instances of a of an idea that didn't start out strong but gradually refined into something. It evolved into something and um, it still reached that point where it just couldn't continue to go forward. 
And I, I do think that scale and technology were the, the things that killed Ultima. Like they wanted to make Ultima, Ultima 9 the biggest Ultima ever. But at the same time, they wanted to integrate this new level of technology and bring it kind of into the post-Final Fantasy VII, post-Half-Life world. Yeah. And it just it didn't – they couldn't pull it off. Sorry, what made me think of adventure games was the fact that uh, King's, the last King's Quest was very much like an Ultima-style RPG, which was bizarre. Um, that is frankly. bizarre. Which Does, King's Quest was that? I think it was 8 or 9. I forget what, what the last one was, but that essentially killed the brand forever. Wow, I can't believe it went that far. Yeah, it was like 99 or 2000. Yeah, it's, it's hideous, and there are lots of, fun, so lots of fun Let's Plays of it online. I wouldn't play it personally. On the, on the other hand, you had uh, Wizardry, which actually was one of those games where the best idea was at the beginning. Like, it was this great, meaty dungeon crawler, really challenging, often unfair. Um, but the, 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 the approach to the sequels that, that uh, Surtech took was just... The, the expectation on players was incredibly high. Like, the, the sequels were not standalone creations. They were basically expansion packs where you bought uh, Wizardry 2... And you needed to import your characters who had completed the original Wizardry in order to have a fighting chance at the very beginning of Wizardry 2. And the same thing happened with Wizardry 3. You needed to import a completed game file from Wizardry 2. Um, like, in that case, you can understand what happened. Like, that series really... If you weren't there narr- from the beginning, yeah, you're mean, not going to be yeah, here with it's us like, now. It's like a funnel at each step. <laughs> like, you have this set of people who bought Wizardry, and then you have a much smaller set of people who were into wizardry enough to finish it. And those were the ones who could play wizardry too. And, and, and then you have the subset of wizardry two people who actually finished that game and they went for wizardry three. I, I feel that way about civilization. I feel like the only people that play that series are people that played two, because whenever I try to get into Civ, I play through the tutorial. And I'm like, okay, I still have no idea why anything is significant. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. I didn't play Civ two. I can't play this one either. I think there was this perverse pride in how difficult the games were because with Wizardry 4, they took out that pre um, the prerequisite that you had finished Wizardry 2, 3, whatever. Uh, but Wizardry 4 was about the villain, and it was crazy hard from the beginning. Like, And there was no way to kind of pull yourself to a competitive level. You couldn't import a previous party into Wizardry 4. The, the subsequent Wizardry games really changed up a lot, and... Um, you know, the, the later games in the series are kind of well-regarded, and uh, the series wrapped up with, with Wizardry 8, which um, was released, I think, 99, 2000. And unlike Ultima 9, it was, uh, it's really well-regarded. It's pretty much considered the pinnacle of the series, but at the same time, the series hadn't really changed that much since 1979, 1980, 1981, whenever the original Wizardry came out. Um, it was still like this first-person dungeon crawler, and that was super unfashionable in uh, <clears throat> in 1999, 2000. It, w- it wouldn't come back into vogue for a few years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the games that do kind of take that style now, like Wizardry is still an extant series in Japan, and occasionally those games come out over here, but they're not they're not developed by Surtex. Surtex no longer around. Like the, the original creators of the series have nothing to do with, uh, with Wizardry these days. Mm-hmm. Um, Robert Woodhead, who was one of the key designers on uh, Wizardry, I think we've mentioned him on a previous episode. I think so. Uh, he like went to Japan, and Japan loved him, and he was like, "I love Japan," and ended up opening, uh, you know, a localization, uh, an anime localization company, Animego. Uh, oh, so that's okay. Yeah. Wow. wow. He's like super into MD Geist. I think. I don't know if those guys are still <laughs> around. I don't. I don't think Animego is still around, but I, I think Robert Woodhead is still around. I don't know. Mm. 
I kind of don't really follow anime that much, so I can't really say. Anime ego, ego. An- anime, anime ego. And ego, which is, is Japanese for English. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> I was going to say a waffle yeah. as well. <laughs> um, uh, this is a side note, but when I would buy their DVDs, it was always great because they would have like a little document inside of like of all the references and things like that. That was, that was cool. They went super far for um, their fans. Yeah, they would also have uh, those great trailers that didn't have any dialogue or anything. It was just like cool animation clips with music put over it. Mm. Yeah, good stuff. Um, but anyway, like the the thing is, Wizardry, you know, did try to kind of be a cutting edge uh, game in terms of technology, and it, I think it was just really expensive to make that kind of game for a very limited audience. And there's only so much you can do, I guess, with uh, with that genre. So. I think it kind of burned itself out, and the game, the, the genre has had sort of a resurgence, but it's been on portable systems with lower specs. I mean, pretty much the the top of the line is uh, maybe Shin Megami Tensei Four. Yeah, but even that, that's, that's that's more of a third person action game. I guess Persona Q would be Etrian Odyssey. Yeah, Adrian yeah. Odyssey also. Um, I didn't want to mention it because it's a cliche for me to talk about oh. Adrian Odyssey. <laughs> it's, it's, like it's a cliche for me to talk about Nintendo at this point. You just got to live up to it sometimes. <laughs> right. But yeah, I mean, Atlas is kind of keeping that alive. And then you have, um, I guess, Starfish uh, is doing... Is it Starfish who's making the Wizardry games these days? I can't remember. But there's just a few little Japanese developers. And Atlas is definitely the biggest one. And they kind of found this comfortable niche of uh, people who are into their games... And will pay, you know, a premium price for their games. Mm-hmm. And uh, apparently it's enough for them to get by on. But, you know, they have a very lean approach. Uh, they're still, you know, people make fun of Capcom fighting games for reusing Morgan Sprite. But my God, some of those Shin Megami Tensei sprites have been around. Like, yeah, now they've, like, cut their arms out so they can animate slightly. But, jeez. Yeah. <laughs> We're talking, like, 16-bit vintage here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, Shin Megami Tensei 4 was a huge technological step back from Shin Megami Tensei 3 Nocturne. You went from one of the best-looking PS2 games to a really nice-looking 3DS game, but much more compact and much much more of a budget kind of approach. Mm. So I feel like those games kind of, uh, they they were formative and they were important. Ultima, Wizardry, like they they had their place, but they just couldn't scale because the, the the genres that they helped establish grew beyond them. Would you say the spirit of uh, at least Ultima maybe lives on in something like Elder Scrolls? Mm-hmm. Is there any sort of connection there? See, to me, when I think of the spirit of Ultima, I think more of like Ultima 4 and the idea of like you as a hero have to be something greater Elder, Elder Scrolls is pretty much just, you know, you're running around killing stuff from a first-person perspective or third-person if you want now. Mm-hmm, yeah. But, um, no, I feel like... I know you love Skyrim. I remember yeah, we sure. had many deep, long talks. Mm-hmm. Sure. I, I feel like um, Bioware actually did a better job of capturing the spirit of Ultima, but even that's kind of subsided as, as you get to like a red blue morality slider. And that's pretty much it. There's no real complexity or nuance to it. Um, and you know, in in a lot of ways, Bioware was channeling classic D and D, which Ultima was building on, uh, going back for things like Baldur's Gate, um, and Icewind Dale. That was just like, wait, did Bioware make Icewind Dale? I can't remember. Anyway, (laughs) all those, all those, uh, uh, Infinity Engine games, um, like that was very much kind of the spirit of Ultima, but also this 
the spirit of what came before Ultima. Yeah, especially stuff like Planescape that we talked about last season where there was there was no, not a focus on fighting. It was a focus on like these moral challenges where there were no easy answers. And sometimes you realize far too late that's like, oh, I really should not have done this. Yeah, actually, Planescape's a good example. And, um, you know, some of the maybe the, some of the successor type games that we see on Kickstarter, uh, maybe some of those will realize what, what, uh, what Richard Garriott was trying to do. But I definitely feel like whatever he's doing is not really. What, what is he doing? He's orbiting the Earth right now, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Or he's in hiding after Tabula, Tabula Rasa. Oh, I don't know. No, I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, Jeez. a lot of people want to. Switch over to uh, talk about platform games now, because that is kind of the opposite of uh, of RPGs. But um, I, I think it's kind of easier to draw a line uh, and, and talk about the the problems that these platformers have had. Uh, really, if you want to go back and look at the the oldest platformer around, besides like Donkey Kong, the the, the oldest success, I think you could look to Pitfall, mm-hmm. um, which came out in 1983. I want to say maybe 82. Um, from Activision on Atari 2600, and it was a huge hit. It was one of the first really great third-party successes ever, and um, it was massive. There was a Saturday morning cartoon about it, and the sequel to Pitfall was even bigger and better and actually had a tie-in with the Saturday morning cartoon. Like at the beginning, you could see the little uh, saber-toothed cat or whatever that your niece, Penny, or whoever she was. Mm. Oh, it's Inspector Gadget. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. I definitely should, have, should not have been able to make that game for the 2600. Like, most games took place in a black void with, like, static hissing at you, but this was a world with an underground and an above mm. ground and vines. and Like, it was crazy. It was, like, super technologically advanced. And I played you know. it on the Commodore 64, and I just, I think it was, like, the Commodore 64C or something, and I remember really enjoying it and going, wow, this is so much different than anything I'd ever played before. Pitfall or Pitfall 2? Uh, I want to say Pitfall. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the concept behind Pitfall was pretty simple. I mean, it's almost like a a modern-day runner game. Like, you were running and jumping over obstacles, swinging across vines, hopping on the heads of crocodiles, alligators, whatever. Um, Watch out for scorpions. (laughs) Scorpions. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it had kind of this weird interlinked world where if you traveled underground, you would jump ahead like three screens at a time. So you could bypass certain things, but you had to collect all the treasures that you could find. Um, so it was it was really kind of a score attack, a time attack, um, very very much in the style of sort of modern iOS games, but with a little more player agency, a little more choice and direction. You could run the other way if you wanted to, yeah. find your way through the mazes. Pitfall 2 was much more of like a labyrinth. Um, instead of just being one screen high all the way across, it was much more about depth, and you went down into caverns and explored. There were um, there were elevators, and you could like get balloons or something and float around. It was really tricky and complicated, but really, really cool for a 2600 game. Uh, really great stuff. And that was the last time Pitfall was really relevant, although yeah. there were lots of other Pitfall games. Uh, who's the creator of this? David Crane. Okay, Um I think there was a Kickstarter for a new Pitfall game maybe two years ago because he was there pitching it at Classic Gaming Expo 2012. 
Oh, wow, um, I totally missed that. So I don't think it made it either. But based on his work following Pitfall, I feel like he couldn't keep up with game design because, I mean, A Boy in His Blob is okay, but if you looked at what he worked on... Um, a Boy in His Blob is very much like Pitfall 2, but oh, with a more yeah. complicated mechanic. Uh, the You know, the, the blob mechanic, um, where you could change its shape and use it as kind of a running tool, um, like that added this kind of extra element to uh, Pitfall 2, but... Yeah, compared to other platformers, it definitely felt a little clumsier. Yeah, he it wasn't also did, nearly um, as visually polished as you know Japanese platformers at the time. Didn't he also do Ghostbusters as well? Does that David Crane? Yes. Okay. Ooh. But then later, he just like it just seemed like he couldn't keep up, and I'm sure this was just like not his fault. But he also did Bart versus the Space Mutants. Um, there are very like weird boy in his blob type adventure elements in the first level of that game, but they just it becomes a shitty platformer after that. But um. I feel like in his case, maybe he just he was really locked into that twenty six hundred style of design. Maybe, but the thing is, David Crane, I don't think really had much of anything to do with most subsequent pitfalls. I'd have mm, to look okay. it up, but you know, um, the the series kind of went away for a while. Um, I would say a boy in a blob, a boy in his blob, was the spiritual successor to Pitfall Two for sure. Yeah, um, but you know, once. That happened. We didn't really see a Pitfall game for another five or six years uh, with Pitfall The Lost Caverns or was that what it's called? No, The Mine Adventure. Yeah. That's a, was that the PlayStation? Uh, no, the there was one on 16-bit systems. Okay. It was yeah, very it was, much like a Earthworm Jim style yeah, platformer. It, it tried really hard to be a shiny Everyone tried platformer. Everyone yeah. Earthworm Jim style platformer. After I mean, it, it was definitely like you went from Pitfall, which was sort of defining a genre and creating something to a pitfall that's looking at the success of someone else's platformer and saying, oh, let's do that. Mm. Um, and then, you know, you did have the, the 3D games on PlayStation where they were like, uh, let's get Bruce Campbell to do narration or voiceover. Yeah. And meanwhile, I'm oh, scratching right. my head like, his name was Pitfall Harry. I was like, really? Yeah, it was. Yeah, no, no. And it just was a, a sort of a reminder. And I was like, oh, that's right. These things were – this was a thing. But that 3D PlayStation, man, uh, game, No. Yeah, a lot of a lot of platformers failed to make the jump into uh, the jump uh, into 3D. But <laughs> I would say that Pitfall actually stumbled before that point. I would say the 16-bit games where they tried to make a comeback, like to me, that really missed the spirit of Pitfall, which was about exploration and kind of tension and and discovering treasure, and turned it into much more of just like a level by level platformer. Yeah, um, with a heavy emphasis on animation. It just yeah like. There was nothing particularly pitfallish about the Mayan adventure, and really, the 3D games were just kind of like a bad Indiana Jones. Yeah, that's what they dressed religion. them as, yeah. pretty much. Did he look like that in the cartoon? Just out of curiosity, was that where that look came from? They, pro- I can't remember the cartoon that well, but they probably did because you know, 1983. What's big? Oh, Indiana Jones. That's right. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, the series has just never gone anywhere since then. Like, uh, it's it's really a shame because. I feel like this is one of those periods of time where its gameplay mechanics would be pretty welcome. It was a tough game. It had a lot of you know expectations for the player. But so like for whatever reason, we just haven't seen anyone do anything with it. Spelunky, is that the new pitfall? Spelunky is more better. Of a, uh, yeah, it is much better. I'll give you that. Yes, I agree. But yeah, I, I could definitely see you you making the case that Spelunky does sort of take the pitfall style and, and spirit and turn it into something more expansive and ever-changing. I like yeah, it that. is all about exploration. That yeah. game. I like that. That's good. Yeah, when you're yeah, constantly yeah. surprised because it's also random gener- yeah. randomly generated. It's but amazing. again, it wasn't it wasn't the creators of Pitfall who did that. It was 
Derek Yu, yeah, yeah. <laughs> who looked at Pitfall and who looked at Spelunker and who looked at roguelike games and said, I want to do a little bit of all of these and put these elements all together and made something fun and different with it. I want to know more about this um, this Kickstarter. Yeah, the Kickstarter. I was, I was digging my phone out of my pocket to look it up, so if, if you want to like take a one second. Sure. Sure. I think the Kickstarter lo- – oh, sorry. I, I didn't know if we were recording. Yeah, well, so, let's talk about the Kickstarter. Okay, apparently there was a $900,000 Kickstarter a few years ago. I think it launched at the Classic Gaming Expo in um, 2012, and uh, – it was called Jungle Venture, and uh, as far as I know, it did not make it because there, oh. there is no Jungle Venture. I just heard much, much later that, oh, okay, none, okay Pitfall Creators Kickstarter attempt closes over 96% short. So I don't think Pitfall was in demand. Also, wow. maybe asking for that much money, I'm not so sure about that. I know it costs a lot to make a game, but you're, you're the Pitfall guy. <laughs> what have you done for me lately, Pitfall guy? That's what I'm saying. Yeah, okay, I remember Jungle Venture, but man, I don't remember it bombing like that. That's terrible. Yeah, I had no idea it was that, that bad. You said that was 2012, right? 2012. Wow. 4% of funding. Poor, poor guy. Yeah, I, I, yeah, that's that's brutal. Yeah. I wonder why, I, yeah, I don't know. Maybe Maybe there was poor publicity because I barely heard about it. Yeah, it only had 669 backers, and it made 31,000 of $900,000 goal. So there you go, folks. That's why there's no new pitfall. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's talk about something that's a little nearer and dearer to my heart, which is Castlevania. So let's start by saying what a shock. <laughs> I know. It's no, I like talking about Castlevania. Let's start by saying that there has never been a great 3D Castlevania game. Hang on, that a series, I'll disagree with you. Yeah, I'll disagree with you too. That series never made it into 3D. Uh, it it tried. All okay, I'll say, let you. Uh, you want to go first? No, no. Well, the, the best 3D. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. You're gonna say Devil May Cry? Yeah, that's the best 3D Castlevania. So, uh, oh, okay, the one Castlevania yeah. never made it into 3D. Yeah, True. and the Castlevania that that came closest to trying Ape Devil May Cry, which is what I was gonna name, um, oh, okay. Lament of Innocence, which had the most ridiculous uh, story of all time, but. I uh, I still appreciated that game. I just I want to throw that out there. But it's true that it was not. It was definitely not perfect. It was not made for the style of exploration. It was trying to be, which was Symphony of the Night inspired. Would you agree? Absolutely. Yeah. It was. It was really dull and awkward. Is that the yeah. first one? I just bought something on PSN. Yeah. It was. It was the one first 3D Castlevania. Okay. Kogi Igarashi's name was attached to it. Um, it was. You know. Um, I'm trying to remember more of the specifics on it, but basically the problem they ran into was the, that every room the looked first the same. Belmont. Yeah. Yeah. The very first Belmont is like the start of the legend, and it had a, a tropey, silly story. Don't get me wrong, but its action mechanics were were decent, if not good. I would say, but oh, yeah. exploration. Has Anita was, Sarkeesian talked about *Lament of Innocence*? Uh, she so should. That's, that's she one should. that definitely she, deserves she, it. Yeah, definitely deserves the heat. If anything, no. <laughs> I don't know what happened bad. in the game. Oh, okay. Was yeah. it like a lot of women being thrown into refrigerators? Uh, I mean, it's <laughs> Leon Belmont's wife, like getting killed and her soul put into the vampire yeah, it's, killer it's, or something. Okay. I can't remember exactly. It's the, it's the sad trope of like the dead wife and or, or she puts her soul into the whip after she gets bitten in some ridiculous oh, like so way. It's like Bionic Commando. But, but I do Pretty feel much. that um, you know and I don't know again uh, as games being products of their time it, you know you cannot help but notice that it was definitely in the vein of wow in the vein of uh, Devil May Cry I think that's right? what they were Which going for everyone in, at, when Devil May Cry came out the immediate reaction it felt like from a bunch of people uh, on the internet and oh, yeah, magazines was, why isn't was, this a Castlevania this game? feels like a Castlevania and oh, I feel yeah. like a lot of that was because it took place in a castle I don't. I think it had that game taken place anywhere else yeah, I don't think that was, sentiment would have happened that's that true that gothic art style was honestly what I feel inspired people to say that because Castlevania didn't really work that also way also a white haired hero 
Mm-hmm. We, oh well, there there are some of those. Soma Cruz. Uh, I'm trying to think who who is the one in uh, Alucard. Alucard. No, I'm thinking of uh, Alucard. I said mm-hmm. Alucard. Uh, who is the one in Harmony, Harmony of Dissonance? Juiced. Dissonance. Was that Juiced? Juiced. Juiced Belmont. He's juiced. <laughs> yeah, or just Belmont. Maybe he tells people like that. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, yeah. The, okay, so the hair could be a, a case for it too. But um, the thing that kind of struck me as odd about that. I was like, oh, yeah, this could look like a Castlevania game. But Castlevania doesn't play like this. The focus is on really hardcore action. Yeah. It's on stylish combos. It's on something that Castlevania is not. You, It's true. You fight big bosses in, like, Symphony of the Night or in any Castlevania, you can say. But the combat in those games is somewhat simplified, and it's more about um, sort of dodging on a 2D plane and then striking back one whip at a time. You're not comboing eight whip hits into it to try yeah. and kill a boss. Like, it just, it just didn't seem right to me that that was the comparison. Right. Yeah. So, actually, I will say that there has been a good 3D Castlevania Uh-oh. game. What? Which is Lords of Shadow, which throws out everything about Castlevania except the superficial elements to become a completely unrelated 3D game that happens to be called Castlevania and has a guy named Belmont with a Lord word. of nonsense. It's essentially like, like, <laughs> like, yeah. yeah that's Castlevania true. May Cry though, right? No, it's more like Castlevania of War. Oh, okay. I thought God of War was essentially Devil May Cry. But yeah, it was God of Whips. Yeah, God of Whips. <laughs> yeah, that was <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, no, I, I agree with you that uh, sort of – but I still – I feel like Lament of Innocence had – had got something right. I don't know what it was. I need to go it back and play nice it. It looked nice and it sounded good, but it didn't right. look nice at all. That every no, room it, looked the same. Well, yeah, but they were. It was a. It was one nice looking room many times. Uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. I'll take that. The and game. Was, the game looked a lot better than its sequel, Curse of uh, Darkness. Yeah, I Curse of Darkness out was a super then. ugly game. It was okay. really ugly. Lament of, Lament of Innocence had this really nice cathedral, like stained glass, great mm-hmm. lighting. When you could still see uh, – what's the female Kojima's name who does yeah, that? Yeah, Ayami Kojima. Oh, yeah. No, you could see her influence on a lot of uh, – and it translated really well in 3D for its time, I thought, even though um, you know the main character's outfit was ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, but um, – But I, I just think it's super tedious. It's not a, it's not a very fun game. And that's, that's actually a problem I have with Lords of Shadow uh, is that it's really tedious because you're just fighting these enemies. It was, it was especially the case with Mirror of Fate. Like they're trying to do the like the combo whip thing. You're beating and beating and beating on an enemy. On an enemy, but the the, the appeal of Castlevania in its classic form was much more of its speed. Like it's a tough, challenging game, but it has that rhythm to it that we talked about in the Castlevania episode last season. Mm. Um, like it just flows really well, especially once you get the mechanics. And the the 3D games never flow. I think they're always really sluggish and dull. I think the combat can flow, but it's not in the way that we appreciate it. Because I, I feel like uh, action games, there has to be sort of a satisfying feel to combat, and especially like for example, I'm a big fan of like this has very loose comparison, but go with me here. Like Bayonetta. Mm. Bayonetta has the best combat stand down of any action game, but I feel like because it's satisfying and the combos feel great. When I look at combat in like Lords of Shadow and I look at combat in like even I thought Lament of Innocence was sort of the same problem. It, it's to that degree where it just doesn't feel good. Combos end quickly. There is not a lot of room for improvisation. Like that's why it's it's not a good action game. It doesn't feel right. Yeah, I agree. With um, that. But I I think a big part of the appeal of Castlevania games is that sort of like free floor free form exploration where you're you're finding your way around the castle and when you have to fight enemies over and over again and it slows things down. That just makes exploration into a chore. I mean, that was a big problem in Mirror of Fate. It tried to be Symphony of the Night, but you were just constantly getting into these stupid fights with stupid enemies that, that took forever to kill. Yeah, Mirror of Fate no tried fun. to be the Everythingvania, actually. Oh, God. Uh, it was just a, <laughs> the worst thing uh, of all things that ever happened with that series. Even worse, I think, than uh, Lords of Shadow 2. 
Which yeah, didn't that's, you that's the thing about sink your teeth into that? No, I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> Bad. Yikes. Uh, no, I mean, even Lords of Shadow, like, even if you like that one game, there's no denying that the sequels were terrible. Like, that collapsed under its own weight immediately. Like, they got it right, right once and never again. Mm. Like, the, the series just hasn't been able to translate into 3D. But I think if you look back through Castlevania's history, you'll find that a lot of Castlevania games are not very good. Like, in the Apid era, you had this kind of consistent line of, of progress through Castlevania, Castlevania 2, Castlevania 3. Good, middling, great game. But then you had, like, Haunted Castle, the, the arcade game, which was terrible. You had Vampire Killer for MSX, which was pretty bad. You had the Game Boy, the first Game Boy game, which was awful. <laughs> like the the series, when when they have kind of like their eye on the prize, uh, it works. But any any kind of variant from that really misses the point. And when you look at the 16 bit era Castlevanias, they're all over the place. They were really trying to find their direction. Yep. And like Super Castlevania Four is really cool, but they only did a one of one game like that. Like they never did another game like that. There was a remake of Castlevania One for the X sixty eight thousand computer. Haven't they remade that game also like a hundred yeah. times? Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I apologize. I mean, Castlevania Four was kind of a remake of Castlevania. That's 1. right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was like, wait, then, Simon again? What? Mm-hmm. What's up? What yeah. And then the the Genesis game Bloodlines was good, but it was kind of weird. It like kind of changed the mechanics and didn't really feel totally Castlevania. Like the one game that was really truly Castlevania-ish was Rondo of Blood, which was never even released here and was kind of treated as a spinoff. It wasn't called Castlevania over there. It was mm-hmm. called Dracula X. That's right. Um, Did the X mean anything or was it just like Dragon Ball Z? Well, and in the style of products of his time, it became uh, very uh, anime-influenced, which I always thought was super weird. I'm like, what's with the headband? What's with the cutscenes? What's with these stuff? What is going on? The headband was a weird uh, That's okay. Move. Yeah. But, you know, that really kind of gave rise to the the subsequent through line of Castlevania games, of good Castlevania games, while while Konami was like, we have to innovate, we have to, you know, keep this franchise fresh and and with the times, they made the really mediocre N sixty four games. They made a Dreamcast game that never even got finished. Oh, I remember they made that. Right. The PS two right. games, which sorry, I don't think that are that good. I I, I only defend Lament of Innocence and loosely at that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, but meanwhile you had people building on Rondo of Blood with Symphony of the Night and then sort of rehashing Symphony of the Night um, to various degrees of success. You mentioned that wet fart in church called Castlevania 64, right? Yeah. Oh, right, um, yeah. yeah. That was that was also just a... I mean, you knew from looking at it. Just Yeah, no. I mean, that, that game... Uh, it was cool fighting, uh, like, uh, uh, skeletons on motorcycles, but after that, it fell <laughs> apart. Like, that was the first level. Then yeah. everything after that was bad. Yeah. Like, yep. that game wasn't even complete. The, the sequel to it, Legacy yeah. of Darkness... That was actually Castlevania sixty four. The rest of the game, yeah, that was like <laughs> that was like the complete game. Okay, that's yeah, that's true. I forgot what the circumstances were behind that. Mm-hmm. Just they just had trouble getting the series to work in three D. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, there was like this kind of thread running through uh, of of you know the good two D exploration games, but you know even those eventually collapsed because they were sort of out of step with the times. They were portable games, two D art. Uh, increasingly baroque systems like some of the mechanics in uh, Portrait of Ruin and uh, Order of Ecclesia, the last two Igarashi Castlevania games uh, Castlevania platformers anyway were just like they were so dense and inscrutable. Mm. Yeah, but they were trying. I mean, I feel like they were. There was that was the honest attempt to okay, we need to spend. Sure, something no, I'm not saying they didn't try. I'm, I'm just saying yeah. that like there was a certain elegance about Symphony of the of Night course. that. Managed to really freshen up the Castlevania series, 
And then they just kind of kept reiterating on that. But they got really far away from the sort of minimal elegance that made Castlevania so fun in the first place. Mm, yeah. It was all about like finding every soul brune or whatever. Every enemy had like a, a drop. I mean, they did before, but now the game was like explicitly about collecting all of those. Right. Like yeah. Pokemon or something. And that actually worked in the, the RAF of Sorrow and Dawn of Sorrow mm. kind oh, of yeah. duology. Yeah. But yeah, but yeah like it, it really – they went too far with it in Portrait of Ruin. Like they started tracking – how many of every item you had and like giving you percentages and the the sub weapons you could collect you could level up to like 10 levels or something wow. so it was really just designed for grinding mm-hmm. and that's not I don't know that's not why I played Castlevania yeah already of Ecclesia felt especially guilty of that actually mm-hmm. and you, you mentioned that yeah so I feel like that's just one of those series that what worked in 8 bits didn't work subsequently and when they found something that did work it wasn't really the direction the company wanted the series to go. They really wanted to make Castlevania a 3D powerhouse. They keep kind of beating their heads against the idea of let's get Castlevania into 3D. Meanwhile, the one that fans love, the the games that fans love are the ones that sort of keep that 2D legacy alive. But even those couldn't maintain enough of an audience to be worth, you know, continuing with. Have we mentioned Harmony of Despair at all? Because right. that was the last yeah, weird that was, one. That was that was fun and different and apparently and multiplayer. actually successful enough that they kept supporting it for a long time. Yeah. But um, it couldn't have cost that much to make that game. Right. Yeah. It's like a new engine and a bunch of recycled assets. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean that was that was a weird sort of one off game that I guess they'll never do again. But I I really have no idea what what future that series has because it's just kind of burned itself out on both fronts. And Konami isn't really into video games anymore. So <laughs> I, I mean No, like they yeah. legitimately aren't yeah, into video true. games anymore. It's they have true. PES and they have um Metal Gear. Metal Gear. Yeah. That's, that's it. So that's pretty much it. Well what about uh when Dragon Collection there's I'm I'm forgetting. There yeah, was but that's their mobile thing. division. Yeah, okay. That's like fine. there's there's the mobile game section. I think uh I do think though, yeah, it it is I think they have finally and I'm gonna go with this pun, but they have put the final stake in Castlevania with that last awful two games, both yeah. Mirror of Fate and Lords of Shadow 2. But um, I do think the spirit of Castlevania will live on in whatever Iga announces. Whatever he's doing behind the scenes now that he's we'll gone see. independent, I believe we will see something that has that that sort of flow and but, feel. But there have been a lot of criticisms leveled at Iga's work with Castlevania. It's true. No, and it's and not a fair. perfect record at all. And I, I think I like Inafune the guy, was, was in the same boat to some degree, I, I do think. Um Inafune was in a different position because – and let's talk about Mega Man because okay. Inafune, the – Keiji Inafune, the creator or co-creator of Mega Man, um, he was in a different spot than Igarashi. Igarashi was the producer on the Castlevania games. Right. But that was his domain. Like that's mm. what he did aside from Nano Breaker, but we don't talk about that. <laughs> no one um, talks about that. <laughs> but but uh, Keiji Inafune was um, – he was an executive at Capcom. He was you know a vice president. He was I think a vice president. Yeah. Uh, he was really calling the shots and making a lot of decisions about things that had much more to do with Capcom's overall business than just Mega Man. Like that was kind of something he kept returning to and working on, I think, because he had a certain affection for it. Of course. But like that's not what his main interest was, whereas Igarashi was just Castlevania, all Castlevania, all the time. Mm. Um, but, but Mega Man is interesting because unlike Castlevania, it did make the jump into 3D, but – Kind of like Castlevania, it did so by just throwing out everything that made Mega Man Mega Man. Yeah, Mega Man Legends is an amazing game. I love it. Yeah, I, I love all three those, of those games. Yeah. But like all two, you said three. Well, there's, there's Tron, Adventures Tron of Tron Bond. Bond. Oh well, okay. Which is yeah, actually, yeah, I think, one. the best of the bunch. Oh, that's um, good, good choice. 
but the thing about the thing about Legends is that it doesn't play like any other Castlevania game or any other Mega Man game. It doesn't have eight bosses. You don't collect weapons from defeated bosses. There's no free choice of level selections. Uh, it's it's totally its own thing, and I think it had a lot of trouble catching on because people wanted yeah. Mega Man in 3D, and there was this game mm-hmm. that was much more like an action-adventure kind of free exploration-type game with a contiguous world called Mega Man, and where the where's the guy's name? Whatever Man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, Dr. Wily's a boat captain. What the hell? I know critics gave it hell because it was not like Mega Man. They're like, where's Mega Man's helmet? Well, you get it in an hour. Okay, just hold on. <laughs> yeah. But it was also like, we, it was like Zelda. It was like pre-Ocarina of Time, Ocarina of Time, and I don't think people appreciated that. They right. just, they couldn't get over their where's my Mega Man attitude. Yeah, it had a, it had Z-targeting. Yeah, and it, they were like, there's an overworld, there's dungeons, there's like a castle town, there's like, I mean, not really a castle town, but like a central town, you know. Ooh. Oh no! Go ahead. Oh you no, finish. I'm done. I mean, I just okay. I love everything it did, and I still think it doesn't get appreciated right. just um, for all the innovations it set forward. Uh, yeah, and I also think Mega Man uh, as a whole doesn't get enough respect for. Uh, uh, I mean, the entire series because when you look at Legends, for example, wasn't that around that same period where they were also experimenting a little later with like Battle Network and like just finding other ways to it reinvent? Was, the it was characters. several years before Battle Network. Yeah, but you eventually saw that period where they were trying as hard as they can to keep it relevant by trying to make adjustments to the characters in the world and the style of the game and spinoffs to that degree. Well, I think I think with Battle Network, you saw Capcom sort of taking a look back and saying, "Which market should we shoot for? Let's mm. go for kids." Okay. Because with with Legends, I mean. Yeah, it's a little bit juvenile in some of the voice acting and story, but a little. <laughs> but it's it, a Miyazaki it's the, movie yeah. in some ways. But the thing is, Miyazaki is like you know all ages. Yeah, and that's really what they kind of went for with Legends. It was much more of like a, a sort of fun cartoon adventure that you could appreciate on multiple levels. Whereas Battle Network is just like kids love their Pokemon. Let's give them Pokemon with Mega Man. Right, mm-hmm. and it worked. It was it was a good game, and the the series was pretty good for a while. But you know, constant iteration and point releases and things like that burned them out. That's right. But when you saw Mega Man actually try to go, like real Mega Man, try to go into 3D, it was terrible. Mega Man X7, Mega Man X8 mm. are not fun. They are like anti-fun. They are concentrated. Were those? I hate humanity. Polygonal graphics or were they actually 3D games? No, they had a lot of 3D mechanics. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah. Okay. Like when you, you know, you saw stuff like Mega Man Powered Up and Maverick Hunter X where they had polygon graphics but still like classic 2D gameplay. Now, those things bombed. No one wanted those. I think that was part of, you know. Part of that had to do with the fact that they were on PSP before anyone owned a PSP. Yeah. Um, so they were just the wrong games at the wrong time. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there just wasn't a market for that. Like, people didn't want classic Mega Man uh, no matter how pretty it looked. And it took it took them going all the way back, turning the clock back to 1989 to Mega Man 2 for Mega Man 9. Wow, that's a lot of numbers. <laughs> um, and basically saying, yeah, we're reverting to the way we were 20 years ago for people to get interested and that lasted for one game Mega Man 10 came and everyone was like yeah yeah, but I think uh, Maverick Hunter X and Powered Up are both the victim of that platform of PSP I think had those games come out on XBLA in a time when you didn't have to charge I mean how much did those games cost when they came out too we're talking 30 30 or 40 bucks Um, you'd put that on like you know an online platform like that I think they would have been way more successful because they were both excellent games we agree with that right they were good games Yes? Yeah. Okay. No, they were. I gave them both good reviews on on 1UP and in EGM, I think. Um, Timing worked against them, if anything. Yeah, definitely. But but at the same time, like, I I still question, you know, if they had been released for Wii in 2007, would people have bought them? 
No, no. I I I think digital only would have been the only way those games would work. Right. I don't think as a package. And that's what they game. did with Mega Man Nine. Yeah. Oh no. Like that's they true. they looked at, at what they had done wrong and said, "All right, let's try this instead." And it worked, but only for one game. Yeah. Because yeah. Lord knows WiiWare was desperate. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's it's weird because clearly there is a demand for Mega Man classic style games because people are pretty bonkers over Mighty Number no. Nine for good reason. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But but the thing is, I think. It's one of those instances where there's a very select audience that's interested in Mighty Number no. Nine. How many Kickstarter backers were there? Like a few thousand. Uh, it was it was pretty high, but yeah. But um, we're not talking like a million seller here. Not like a Pebble Watch or something right. like that. Yeah, yeah we're not no, talking exactly. those numbers. Uh-huh. Um, so what you had is with with the Kickstarter for Mighty Number no. Nine, like Inafune realizing like working solo independently, you know, getting crowdfunding, I can make this kind of game. But working on the scale that Capcom has to work in, that's just not possible yeah. anymore. Yeah, you have to feed yeah. the levels of bureaucracy that are holding you up and, like, everything that deals with that, like, PR and marketing and things like that. I'm sure that's part of the cost for Mighty Number no. 9, but it's not, like, there's not a business behind it, a huge right. business. Well, and he's, and he's happy with this. He's just like, I'm going to make games for fans who appreciate it. I don't have to worry about anyone else. But I worry in the back of my mind, but isn't that a is, – is that is that pool going to grow? Is that you know? Will that pull shrink over time as people sort of not forget him, but forget that style of game? Hmm. I mean, yeah, I think I think the problem with with kind of catering to that nostalgia, that demand for the bygone days, for things that have kind of vanished, is that people want it and they want it and they want it, then they get it, and then they're satisfied for a while. And if you you know keep giving it to them, like there's this definite point of diminishing returns. Mm-hmm. I don't think you know a mighty number no. nine two if it comes out a year later would do very well. I, I think he probably gets that. I think it'll mm. be a while before we see sequels, but then again, maybe not because you know there is like the whole mighty gunvolt thing, and it seems mm. like they're trying to make a cartoon out of it. That's right. Um, so um, you know maybe maybe he's putting too many eggs in that basket, and we're going to see what happened to Mega Man happen all over again. Mm. I really don't know. Time's gonna tell. Yeah. jump ahead and talk about series that actually did successfully make the jump mm. and why they succeeded. I mean, we've kind of looked at the the many factors of, of franchises that haven't you know, survived time. But then you have something like Mario. Like, it doesn't matter how many Mario games come out, how long the series gets in the tooth, the games are always fun and people always buy them. And maybe people don't buy as many copies of Mario 3D World as as you might expect them to, or Galaxy as you right. expect. Yeah, them the, to. The, yeah. The, the, like the kind of cutting edge Nintendo Mario games that sort of push new boundaries and um, kind of try to stay at the the edge of technology yep. or at least available technology for Nintendo yep. don't really do that well. But then the ones that kind of call back to people's nostalgia are very successful. The new Super Mario Brothers games. But then there's all kinds of franchising, too. I don't know. What do you guys think? Why is Mario the gold standard of an evergreen franchise? Oh, I, 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 yeah. I think they, just, they, they never dropped the ball. If Mario 64 was like Bubsy 3D, I don't think we'd see Mario anymore. But they, they were fortunate enough and talented enough to get everything right as much as they could on the N64. And by creating that new kind of experience, they said this character is no longer just like a product of the 80s or whatever. He can persist. 
And the controls for Mario haven't changed much since Mario 64, at least for the um, the, the non-new games. New as in New Super Mario Brothers. Sure. Yeah, you still long jump the same way. I think a, a lot of it, too, has to do with them just being very reactive and adaptive with each new cutting-edge Mario game. Um, and in some ways, it's ways that we almost disagree with, right? I mean, look at Mario 64, which, for the most part, like, completely... You know, going from 2D to 3D, it just opened up that world in a way that was never possible in 2D. And it, it was almost too much freedom. But they found really cool ways to reuse it with reasons to go back in and get the stars and get things like that. Sunshine, I think, followed a lot of that tradition. But then after Sunshine, Galaxy streamlined everything to, like, these levels that became a lot more linear to just drive and direct you in a certain way. And a lot of that, I think, came from them just going, hey, we're still not good at 3D cameras. Hey, we're still not – like, how do we keep people interested in playing platformers like this at a high skill threshold yeah. but also continue to keep this faithful to what Mario is? Right. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because I do think that Sunshine was kind of a turning point for Mario games. I think after Mario 64, you know, like it just seemed like every Mario game introduced some new amazing element to the medium. And there was this expectation that every Mario game has to change the world. And then Mario Sunshine came out, and it tried to do a lot of stuff. And it was a really complicated game. And people were like, ah, this doesn't really feel like Mario. Mm-hmm. And they stepped back and said, you know what? Maybe we don't have to be revolutionary every time. Maybe yeah. what we can do is just create really great platformers with some fun, interesting ideas. But we don't have to reinvent the wheel. Like, we've already done it. We invented the wheel, and then we reinvented it. That's good enough. Let's yeah. just make these games even better each time. Well, look yeah. at Galaxy, right? Streamlined, but now you're on the friggin' ceiling. You're <laughs> upside down. You're wrapping, wrapping around planets. You're doing all of this. It's almost like they, they sort of condense and come up with ideas, condense ideas, but then also find ways to expand different ones. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons 3D World was, uh, was really good as well to me, where um, I thought it was a really fun co-op game as long as you played with people who knew how to play Mario and who it then becomes kind of that competitive fun. Um, we we would play that at the office, and we would have a like it would just we'd be laughing nonstop for hours over it. Um, and I feel like that was you know that that game specifically was a reaction to hey, two D Mario sells, uh, new Super Mario Wii. We tried the co op thing. Everyone's colliding. What about on a three D plane? Why don't we try that? Why don't we focus the camera? We're constantly complaining. I feel like every time they do a new Mario game too, they the feedback afterwards is always we're still struggling with camera. We're mm-hmm. still struggling with ways to direct people and have them maintain, you know, sort of where they are or that spatial awareness or something like that. Am, am I wrong with that assessment? No, I don't I don't think so. I think Nintendo really makes an effort to make Mario approachable. Yep. Uh, if I could comment on Sunshine, I know we left it behind, but I, I do think it was Nintendo chasing trends that weren't made for them because we, we had the addition of, like, story segments with voice acting and stuff like that. And also just how big those levels were reminding me of like, oh, this is like open world mania where it's like we need huge levels for you to find your way through. So uh, like Mario Galaxy is much more focused, like go from this platform to this platform. And Mario Galaxy was like work your way slowly up to the top of this series of girders. But if you fall, you have to start over again. And they take the jetpack or the backpack away too. Oh, those yeah. levels were – I, I mean they're levels. great <laughs> levels though, but oh, they're so hard. Some of those were like this guy will throw you an arbitrary distance. Hope you hope you choose the right one. Yeah, just like luck. that's not very fun. That's but, very um, trial and error and so unlike them too. Yeah, yeah it was weird. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because um, Sunshine feels like they looked at Banjo-Kazooie and said, oh, we can do better than that. Hmm. Um, I think they which could, is but, Which yeah. is weird because in the past, Nintendo looked at what Rare was doing with Donkey Kong and said, let's do something different. And they came up with Yoshi's Island and kept that from being like a 3D pre-rendered game. And, and it was something totally that stood on its own. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think Sunshine was just them kind of like 
losing a little bit of the plot. And Nintendo was kind of losing the plot all around in that era. And uh, yeah, they just refocused and, and tightened it down. And I guess that's it is like, don't be afraid to focus on your core strengths to understand what makes your game great and understand what you can change about it and help it make, you know, help it seem fresh and new each time without sacrificing the underlying concepts yeah. and, and the essence of it. Yeah, yeah we talked to uh, the, the co-director on that game, uh, Kenta Motokora, and he was talking about, like, brainstorming sessions where he's like, yo, t- tell me where you take your, like, your girlfriend to eat. Like, let, think of anything <laughs> you can. Maybe we can put it somewhere in this. Maybe we can put an idea based around something wacky and weird in here, but also just not betray what this is. And I thought that was fascinating because I'm just mm. like, really? Like, open like that? I mean, I would assume it's just, hey, how do we make a better platform or a ba- better platforming level, not some personal questions like that. I thought that was really strange. And I, I also think the um, the pacing on Sunshine was way off, as, as long as we keep picking on this game, where Mario games before that, it was just like a straight dash to the end. You're, you never stop running. You never stop jumping. Uh, Sunshine, you were just like hovering in the air, slowly adjusting your jumps, going to the next one, slowly Absolutely. hovering. And just yeah. like it was so fidgety and re- like required so much like meticulous attention to like height that it, it just kind of lost Mario's, like, you know, just keep running forward and hitting a button kind of But, but I do want to point out, though, that there is an audience that's very hungry for an exploration-based Mario game right yeah, now. Yeah. Or at least they're very vocal about it. I don't know if they're a huge audience per se. Um, and I do, I do think it is due time to, to come back to that idea, and maybe that's what the next thing is. I mean, we don't know. Yeah, maybe. I think it could happen. But I think Nintendo is kind of conservative, but... Usually, when it comes to Mario, in the right ways, like they've they've kind of learned not to stray too far. Um, so that's a big part of you know what's made the series pretty good. Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, do New Super Mario Brothers two and throw some money at the problem. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let, let's talk about some games that uh, you know again succeeded. Uh, in this case, that made the jump from two D to three D pretty elegantly. And we can start out by talking about something that we discussed last episode. Which is Duke Nukem. All right. Duke Nukem about started Duke Nukem last episode? As a gaming flop. Yeah. But in this case, we're going to talk about what was good about Duke Nukem. Okay. Which was, it started out as a 2D platformer, kind of um, actually sort of inspired by Mario. Didn't, didn't uh, Apogee, was it Apogee? I think it, yeah, it was Apogee. Yeah, they wanted to, like they went to Nintendo and said, look, we can do a PC version of Mario 3 for you. And Nintendo was like... No thanks, Westerners. We'll do our own thing. I thought that was the id software guys, but I could be wrong. I thought that was because who did Jazz Jackrabbit? We're we're, we're that was that. Epic. Okay, yeah, mm-hmm. maybe it was Epic. I think it was Epic who did the demo for Nintendo. God damn, I'm Sorry. getting all mixed up. There are so many of these like PC platformers from this era that all look the same. Right. So it's hard to well, know, and there you go. Commander I mean, that's the, that's the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Commander Keen. Uh, that was also Apogee. Wasn't Chips it? Adventure or whatever. Chips, Chips Challenge. Challenge is that a platformer? Uh, no? That's more like a puzzle game. Okay. Anyway. Um, <laughs> The point is, Duke Nukem originally was pretty indistinguishable from a lot of other generic sort of clumsy 2D platformers on PC. And then it came into 3D and came into its own. Mm-hmm. And Bob is a big fan, so I don't know. What do you think is the the sort of golden element of Duke Nukem 3D that made it work where it didn't work in 2D. I honestly don't think it really borrowed that much from the 2D games because I played I played a little bit of them. I think it was just like a reimagining of that concept through different means. So like I think in Duke Nukem the early games you were just shooting aliens but it felt like very kiddy where Duke Nukem 3D felt like very teen, teenage appropriate where it was like everything was amped up in terms of like aggression and like subversiveness 
But um, I really think it was just them um, approaching the first-person shooter genre from, like, a different perspective where it's like you're not in hell. You're not on Mars. What if you're just in a city? What if you're in a, in a real-life place, and how do we make that happen? And I think that's what um, that's what Duke Nukem 3D did well. And I don't even think the original games even tried for that. Hmm. And I should add that Apogee changed their name to 3D Realms to, like, cement the fact that, like, no, we make 3D games now. So mm, okay. it was funny. Um, I mean, would you say a lot of it, though, was born from the trend of, what, Doom? That, that whole just Doom bandwagon? Oh, yeah. They definitely jumped on uh, the FPS train because it was, like, that's where the money was. But mm-hmm. they 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 thought they were more thoughtful about it. There were, like, 9 billion awful Doom clones. But Duke Nukem stood out because of everything, like, different it did, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, because the Duke Nukem brand was not, like, um, huge. I think there was, like, a G.I. Joe character called Duke. Or was there, like, a Captain Planet character? <laughs> if not, he looks like a G.I. Yeah, Joe does, character. He does. Like the perverted one, but Any, sure. Anyhow, like, they're, they're, like, Duke Nukem, the brand was not like, yes, I can't wait for the next Duke Nukem game. It was just like, oh, the shareware thing that some people have. Mm-hmm. So I think it was just, like, what it did differently from Doom. And, and of course, the strippers and, like, uh, all of the, the... The absurd 90s? Yeah, all the 90s shit it did, basically. Ugh, that, that's yeah. what made it catch on. So uh, there are two other games that I wanted – or two other series I wanted to mention that I think both succeeded in the same way, uh, making the transition from 2D to 3D, and that's Final Fantasy and Metal Gear. I would say both of those succeeded working their way into 3D by not really changing the underlying game so much, by treating three-dimensionality as a matter of presentation more than mechanics. I mean, obviously Metal Gear Solid – had you know more integrated 3D elements, you could go into a first-person aiming view with certain weapons. Um, but on the whole, it, it really didn't play that differently than Metal Gear 2. That's right. On oh. MSX, which was an 8-bit game. It was just like a much fancier version with integrated cutscenes that looked exactly like the gameplay. It was, you know, very cinematic, very immersive, very seamless. Um, Final Fantasy wasn't so seamless with Final Fantasy 7, but... Final Fantasy VII is not that different than Final Fantasy VI. I mean, it even has kind of a very similar uh, leveling mechanic with the Materia, which is not that different from the Magisite system of Final Fantasy VI. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it had like cool 3D battles, but did those need to be 3D? No, it was it was playing out the exact same way as the 2D battles, except you know slower because there were more animations and everything looked more cool, mm-hmm. cooler, whatever. That's right. Yeah. Well, even in Metal Gear, you could not even move the camera in one of those games until subsistence, right? Like, yeah, you could that's not, when they I mean, finally that's did right. the orbital you, camera. You could move it, like, in a fixed way where you're just sort of, like, panning left and right in, like, a 3D area. But, like, yeah. I remember watching a uh, – making a Metal Gear thing or reading it in a magazine and it's, like, Kojima and his team, like, build things out of Legos first mm-hmm. and then figure out what the best camera angle to show that from. So it was, it was like like you said, the presentation was – 3D, but the game was basically 2D. You can play it by looking at the radar, which yeah. is why they took that out because it's like you can just play this by looking at dots, and that's not yeah, and fun. You can tell Everyone the, complained about it being Pac-Man. Yeah. yeah, and you can tell from – yeah, no, and they were totally right too even though it was it was also a really awesome Pac-Man. But yeah, and you can even tell in some uh, some areas, like even think right outside of Shadow Moses how um, there's a section on the right where if you go up uh, the stairs past the camera – when you get to the wall and you flatten, there's just a low angle that, like, it almost looks cinematic, like, movie-like. It's it's that Kojima, I want to be a director yeah. right here. And it's, you're only going to see this for two seconds, but, man, this is a good shot. It could be pre-rendered backgrounds. Thank God it never was. But that, know, that's, it never it's, was. It's sort of like that style, but in, with more, like, I guess, uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for, uh, maneuverability, more like you can play with it more. It's not just a static image, yeah. but... 
it essentially is because he wants you to see things from a certain perspective, and that's the way you're only going to see them, at least in those early games. No, and it was really smart by both those franchises to just put, dump the money and the effort into, well, I, I don't mean dump the money, all of it into presentation, but I think you're absolutely right with that point because what was the highlight of every Final Fantasy to most casual people? It was the cutscenes. Yeah. You'd see that stuff and be like, holy cow. And Final Fantasy VIII's love story made no goddamn <laughs> no, sense. No. But when Look, they danced in that ballroom, it was magic. He was carrying her across the railroad tracks and realized I love her even though I'm surly. And, and when Faye Wong's vocals kick in, you have no idea what, <laughs> what she even singing about. The, <laughs> the interesting thing matter. is that eventually Final Fantasy did make it into 3D, but it was a very gradual transition. It was, you know, Final Fantasy VII added the polygons yep. and pre-rendered backgrounds with camera angles. And then Final Fantasy VIII made it a little more dynamic and did a better job of integrating, like, the little polygon people over pre-rendered cutscenes, and Final Fantasy IX was pretty much more the same than ten. Nine was awesome though, for for especially that classic throwback. I just want to give it a second though, like nine because of that classic throwback to everything that was like the original series. I, me I too. nothing pains me more than when nine gets skipped over. Yeah, I just oh, I, I didn't got, skip it. I you did it. You did it. No, <laughs> I just wanted a few more seconds. But then Final Fantasy X finally got rid of the pre-rendered backgrounds, but That's it right. still had fixed camera angles. Everything was still kind of a. It, very Metal Gear-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, eventually they dropped the fixed camera and that gave us Final Fantasy XI and twelve. And at that point, it was a proper 3D, open world, you know, exploratory RPG, modern era. Then Final Fantasy thirteen was like, oh, let's move, move the camera back to a fixed Do angle. we count eleven though, really? I mean, just yeah, we should. Sure. MMO, I, I, 11, most people 12, love to throw 11 under the bus, which worries me. I'm, I'm like, not a why? fan, but yeah. I recognize that it has its place in the evolution of the series. Right. And um, I think both 12 and 13 take some cues from 11, especially 12. I mean, uh, totally it's basically does. like, hey, what if level of Final Fantasy 11 were a single-player game? Yeah. Yep. Well, there you go. That's Final Fantasy 12. Absolutely. But 13, I, I mean, the kind of like um, the way combat sort of plays out for you automatically and you're just sort of directing what your party does, that's very MMO-ish. Like but, in, in MMOs, you're not always like giving very specific directions. It's more like – Go over here, attack these things. You're usually then, just going through a routine like this meter's yeah. dropping. Now I hit, I hit yeah. this meter, now I hit this meter. And yeah. you just yeah. watch those meters essentially. Right. But where 13 had like one of the cooler battle systems of that series, I mean its world was uh, gets so much uh, f- you know, hate for how linear it was. And almost like you know, them jumping on that trend was a mistake. And I hate to point that out because I feel like it always invites that – you know, Japanese versus Western approach. But regardless of where the idea came from, it was a trend at the time that was successful. Like it doesn't matter. Well, the linearity? The linearity. Uh, that was that was a that was a kludge. They mm-hmm. they did that because they didn't have time or budget to do the game they wanted to make. Okay. I mean, uh they've they've talked about that a lot. About how basically the delays in Final Fantasy twelve caused thirteen to bump from PS two to PS three and the need to create a new engine slowed things down and so finally they got to a point where they're just like we've got to ship this game so we have a story we have combat let's just put them into these environments and let them run straight through and that's the mm. game can I uh, can I offer a tip to Square on this very podcast stop announcing eight freaking Final Fantasies at the same time yeah. <laughs> how about that one I think like they've this... gotten over that I hope at least right yeah because you they? know uh, what is it Ajito 13 is now 15 or something yeah, and we're right. still waiting <sighs> One day we'll see the end of all Final Fantasy XIII's. <laughs> mm, yeah.
finally, we'll end this podcast on a question. Where on the spectrum of good or bad, successful or irrelevant, do you think Sonic the Hedgehog falls? Oh, <laughs> yeah. I'm, 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 talking, I'm talking the whole scope of, this, of the history here, starting with the Genesis up through now. Like, it's had its ups and downs, but on the whole... I have something to say. Okay, let, he's played more Sonics, more recent yeah. Sonics than I have. I have given up. I, I gave s- up a long time ago. I can say, well, that's a smart idea because I can say, <laughs> as a concept, Sonic had three good games in it. Like those three games are really solid. I guess you can count Knuckles, whatever. I mean, that that is like they reached the logical conclusion of what that concept could be, and then in 3D they realize, oh. We can't do this in 3D, which is why the first game was uh, like adulterated so much. Which is why he's like, "Here's your fishing mini game. Here's your this. Here's your that. We don't know how to make a thing move fast in 3D and still have it be fun." And they've still been struggling with that. Even the good Sonic games don't work well. Like I like Sonic Generations, but there are times when you're like, "I just careen through something. There's no way I could have seen that coming. There's no way I could have prepared for it." And like, it just feels like um, even in those games, they lock it to 2D so often that they they can never figure out how to make 3D Sonic games work. And um, what about Lost World? Was that Lost in this ass- assessment somewhere? I, I never you Lost know, World I, just wanted to be Mario Galaxy. I never played that at, at high speed. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> oh, sorry. I just have too much to say about this. But oh, please. This is my last statement. Like uh, I remember, like an interview coming out around the time um, Sonic Werewolf Party came. What the hell was that game called? Sonic. Oh, Unleashed. Uh, yeah, Unleashed. Unleashed. Okay. You got it. When that came out, it's like no, we have to. Oh, sorry. When I get when I get when I talk about Sonic, I get angry. <laughs> So uh, it angers up the blood. So when when that game came out, there were some interviews and people were like, well, we like these fast parts with Sonic. Why can't you just make a game with those parts? And they're like, well, they would go by too fast, so we need to pad it out. Well, they didn't say pad it out. But it's like we need to include these slower combat parts so the adventure will go on longer. But it's like your levels don't need to be these like photorealistic, like real-life worlds. They can be abstract. That would be so great if there was just, like an abstract Sonic game with like checkerboard worlds. It wasn't like um, – you know, photorealistic beach settings and, like, cities and things like that. I think if, if they made a 3D Sonic game and weren't as tied up with making these awesome-looking assets, they could actually make the game they wanted to make or they want to make. And Sonic Generations was kind of a step in that direction, but still the 3D parts were kind of awful. And Bob's face is really red right I now. I know. It's not just because it's 90 <laughs> degrees in here either. <laughs> yeah. So Bob has opinions about Sonic. I do. And I want to I wanna like it, and it's cool if you do, but I feel like that concept had three 2D games in it, and All that's right. it. Which, which games were those? Um, yeah, please. The original Sonic Trilogy. Okay. Like, really? uh, and Sonic and & Knuckles, because it's technically still the third game. Yeah. So I have enough. See, I feel like Sonic 3 is not that good. I get a lot of crap for saying that, but I feel like it just it takes the concept and, and makes it really muddy. Sonic CD, I think, is, is okay. the third good Sonic game. Maybe, yeah, maybe Sonic 1, 2, and CD. 3 might be a little too busy, but I can still, like, it feels like the logical co- conclusion should have been, like, that is Sonic that's Sonic the end. Goodbye. <laughs> well, you know, they, they skipped a generation. They took uh, an entire generation of games off. They, they think... didn't do anything aside from, you know, a compilation on Saturn because they were like, we got to get this right. And I don't know that they necessarily got it right, but they, they came close with the adventure. I think a lot of it moments. was Yuji Naka not being cooperative and wanting to do the next thing that would be the next Sonic. So there was Knights, there was Burning Rangers, but... Um, it's weird that they didn't just force him to do a Sonic game for Saturn, you know? There was well, Sonic X Stream, which was an yeah. American thing, right? 
Am I right what, about that? What was that? Yeah. What was that game Yuji Naka was working on with uh, his studio Prope? That it was oh, uh, for the Wii. The Sky Knight. The Sky Knight thing because it looked it like looked cool. something so cool. Ro- and Rodea the Sky Knight. There you go. Or the Sky Soldier. Sky Soldier. Yeah, yeah. that was it. Rodea. It's basically Soldier. Nausicaa. Yeah, but has that game? I'm sorry. This is a slight tangent. No. Nope. No. no don't one. know what happened to that. Oh God. The last okay. time I've seen his name on a, or his company's name on a game are the 3DS mini games. No. Nope. Made what by Prope. Oh yeah, yeah. And there was Ivy the Kiwi. Ivy the Kiwi. That's right. To say it like. Yeah. <laughs> I mean yeah. the kiwi. I mean the kiwi. Um, hmm. Yeah, I I gave up. I, I, I'm sorry to say this, but I gave up on Sonic. I just feel like I feel like when it's at its best, and I and I feel this applies to Lost World too, to a degree. Um, those games can feel like uh, they almost feel like a racing game to me. Where like if you're into racing games, you know, you play a stage over and over, and you learn the track, and you find the best route, and you find the best pathway. Yeah. And I feel like at, at its best, those games can do that. Mm-hmm. I, but I do feel like there's just something in between being that type of game and what it is now that just doesn't feel right. And it hasn't for some time. It's true. But a weird thing is, like, I, what I think has carried the torch for Sonic or just, like, it's doing what Sonic did better with hindsight is uh, the new Donkey Kong Country games. Like, I feel those are paced like Sonic games. Mm. They're all about moving forward as fast as you can, except they give you advance notice of things that will hurt you. The, the, the characters are easier to control. There's not that weird momentum thing Sonic has. Like, I feel like they borrowed a lot of Sonic's, um, the pacing of Sonic for the, that series. You must love the time trials and Tropical Freeze, man. Those oh, things they're, are too, they're too much for me. Right? Yeah, they're hard. Yeah. But that game is all about speed. That game is all about just, like, blazing through things, like, somersaulting through things. I mean, I don't know if you agree with me, but it feels like a Sonic game. When I played it, I'm to like, some degree, this I is agree. what Sonic should play like, but it doesn't. See, I still have hope. I still have a small bit of hope, a tiny, tiny bit of hope, and you're going to hate me for saying this, for um, Sonic Boom. No, nope, yeah, it's not going to happen. Say Did you play it? I'm going to say it. I, when I played it, it was rough, but I was yeah. like, okay, this could just be a really rough demo. Please, for the love no, of the God. Problem, the problem with Sonic Boom is that it totally misses the momentum thing that Bob was talking about, the the... the Velocity. Okay. It's very much about like sort of 32-bit action game oh, style. No, like, it is. No, it is. No. I mean, it has some Sonic levels, but then if you play as Knuckles, um, there are these levels where you're like, you know, you've got that energy whip thing, so you're using it to pull boxes around yep. and create platforms yep. and reach higher areas, and it's just it's very like uh, it would work. It would be great as Sly Cooper. But I don't know that it really works as Sonic. Okay. See, listeners, it's not about the art style. <laughs> it's actually uh, the mechanics I think, I think I'm okay with the art style. Like, yeah. It's nice that they're trying to keep it fresh and relevant. Yeah. And actually, the, the idea, was a good the idea, idea of putting stupid runner's tape on Sonic, it makes sense. He's freaking running. It does, yeah. yeah. Give him some athletic tape. He's probably got blisters all over his poor okay. little feet. Now, I played a demo D3, and it was like, push this crate to this switch. Yeah, now, I think now, we played the same level. Now do combat for some reason. Yeah. It was like God of War Babies. It's yeah, like, I understand yeah. it's a kid's game. It's not for me. I'm not going to be too harsh on it, but... I think kids deserve better games, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. I wasn't playing trash for the most part when I was a kid. Okay, kids, sure. deserve, kids deserve a good Sonic game. That's my opinion. Can I uh, can I throw one game as a suggestion for this topic? Do it. Metroid. Uh-oh. I think Metroid's only had one bad game. But it is it is struggling in terms of relevance. I mean, it, big it, time. That definitely brought the series to a screeching halt. It did. As Nintendo stops and recalculates and says, oh, that's not what Americans wanted. Yeah. Weird. Um, yeah, I, I just bring it up because I feel like, you know, we, we saw sort of progress through the first two, uh, the first three, or not one in three, you know, uh, Metroid 2, 
has its good qualities, but it's definitely not a shining star. Right. Well, Fusion, I think, is good, too. Yeah, no, and I think Fusion's great, too. And they skipped a generation, just like Sonic, right? During the 64 era, you did not see a Metroid game in sight. Um, And then when they did bring it back and sort of found a company that can deliver on the vision, you've talked about this plenty of times, but it was, in a lot of ways, Super Metroid. And then the sequels that that company tried to make with their own ideas were good in some ways, but, but bad in others. Yeah, but not great in others. Um, and that that was sort of, especially by the third Metroid Prime, I feel like uh, that game, I feel like all the hate goes to the second one. And I, I give the second one a little bit more credit for at least trying to do something in some ways. I don't know, I'm forgiving that way. Uh, but by the third one, I was just like, okay, this comes together well by the end, but it still just didn't feel like that first game where they they almost nailed the concept immediately and they got it too right. Okay, so I would say that Metroid and Zelda both have the problem, which is that their 16-bit entries were perfect. Yes. A Link to the Past and Super Metroid, like you can do some fine-tuning on those games, but conceptually and mechanically and just in terms of structure, like those are big. Mechanics, structure, um, what else did I say? Concept. Yeah. Like, how how can you beat those? Nintendo doesn't really know, so they've been iterating, and they do some interesting things, especially with Zelda. Like that that series has taken some pretty odd directions, and usually it's successful. Yeah, but, that's right. Yeah, Metroid games are like if you don't make Super Metroid again, what are you doing? Well, and I'm with you. The fusion is good, and I also that gets me riled up and, when people like to throw that game on the yeah, list. I think Metroid's, the focus was right. I just replayed it, and I like it. It's a, a little wordy. Fine, Metroid's not great. alone in that. Look at all the indie games that are like, I love Super Metroid, and they are just Super Metroid. I mean, over and over. Guacamelee, mm-hmm. you know, they they put some uh, fighting game elements into it. Nice and, Mexican art too. Love yeah, that. like uh, I, I like that game. It's very Super Metroid-ish, but it does do something different. But most of those indie games that are doing the Metroidvania thing are just. Super Metroid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, no one has really figured out what can you do beyond that. Well, and there's nothing worse than exploration-based platformers like that that are sort of uh, – that's how I like to describe them because I hate that other word. Metroidvania. Um, <laughs> uh, oh, God. Ah, um, I just – I owned I, it so no one else can – There you go. Nothing, nothing bothers me more, though, than games in that style that label every secret. Like, the color-corded doorways in Guacamelee. Like, Guacamelee is great. The, the uh, combat's great. I f- love the combat. I love the platforming. It has some of the toughest platforming I've ever done hmm. in a game, hands down. However – when I'm w- rolling around through the world and I find these red colored doors, these feels like I don't want to know that clearly. Strider, same problem. Everything's labeled. So, so you don't like map. Super Metroid? I, hmm. I do and don't. I don't feel like Super Metroid labeled it that clearly. It did? I need to go back. Red doors are for missiles. Green doors That's are been for there super since missiles. The beginning. Yellow I doors count are for no. no, but but No, in the original Metroid, it was just blue doors okay, and red but doors. Some, what about but then something they, they like... They color-coded it for the powers. But bombing like a certain spot on the map that was not colored in any way possible. Like, that's something that I'm more I'm talking uh, to. They Using like these, little bombs like these that. These games don't have the trust that Super Metroid had. Yeah, uh, and, or people. using like uh, certain abilities to get to other areas uh, outside of the red blue door. I totally get what you're going from with that, but I'm like, I'm being defensive. No, <laughs> <laughs> um, they. Uh, I feel like they still found an elegant way to use all of those powers that are around there, and you eventually learn the language that they're trying to teach you. Yeah, but there is a lot of kind of aimless bombing and wandering. I can and, do that. Zelda, yeah, and Metroid, Super yeah. Metroid. Absolutely, I'll, I'll totally take that. But uh, when, when everything is labeled, I feel like I feel betrayed. I feel like, what is this? I don't want this kind of game. Well, this is a different franchise, but Nintendo has sort of promised that the next Zelda will be like about you want to go over there, go over there and find out what's over there. You get know? shot up. Yeah, by they the said thing that about fire. Destiny too, and that, yeah. that didn't work. <laughs> I, I don't trust them at all. I mean, they said mm-hmm. Skyward Sword was going to be like that in some ways, and it was more like a Mario game than a Zelda game in terms of uh, progression. But 
I, I really want to see that happen, and I think the spirit of Metroid can be in another game. You know. Well, didn't they earn your trust back with a Link Between Worlds? Sorry, oh, you know what? You're right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like they, they got um, some of it. Back. That's true. That's true. I just worry about the console Zelda's. Because, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, this uh, episode's gone on a Jeez. really long time. About <laughs> Sorry. Hours. No, that's fine. It's fine. We that's, have a lot to say. The first episode you have Jose back. I hope, just keeps, <laughs> us, keeps us here way too long. I hope we didn't bore everyone to sleep. Um, anyway, so I think we definitely should wrap it up now. Um, thank you, everyone, for your patience and listening this long. And thank you, Jose, for coming in. Oh, absolutely, man. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. Um, great having you. So to wrap this up, we should talk about our stuff we're Retronauts. You can find us at Retronauts.com, uh, Retronauts on Twitter, on Facebook, on other Twitch. Yes. Um, and also you should support us on Patreon because we are now entirely self-funded. We're not doing Kickstarters. We're just doing Patreons. And we can't do this podcast without your donations. So please help us. Help us. Um, you can find us on US Gamer. We're not getting money from US Gamer, but we're getting love. And uh, then individually speaking, Jose, tell us about yourself, your internet presence. Got it, got it. Uh, so I work for IGN. Whether you love us or you hate us, you know what that is. And uh, obviously you can find us on all social channels. But uh, myself within IGN, uh, I've mostly focused on Nintendo coverage. I run a podcast there called uh, Nintendo Voice Chat, uh, which is a weekly show. It's either Thursday or Friday. Sorry. You get them one day, one day or the other. There's no way for me to tell sometimes. Um, and uh, on Twitter, you can find me at Jose underscore Otero. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob. I'm here all the time. <laughs> and uh, I also write for US Gamer and uh, Something Awful as well. And uh, I'm on Twitter as Bob Servo. I think that's it. Like I said, like Jeremy said, please give to our Patreon. There should be regular like little mini ads throughout these episodes once we figure that out, not to give away what, time, what date this is, you know. Right, and, and you know, part of the process of or the, the the objectives for Patreon is that we'll be creating more Retronauts content on the site itself. So keep checking the site, uh, and there'll be you know cross references to US Gamer type stuff and blah blah blah. Anyway, it's good. Well, be and cool. your listeners know it's. I mean, I'm going to go on record. It's damn good stuff. Like I love Ooh, I appreciate the Retronaut that. stuff. Yes, absolutely. IGN endorsing the competition. Yeah. Um, <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> like, hang on. <laughs> no, no, it's true. I, I love the stuff you guys do. So please Thanks. continue. Thank Appreciate you. It. Yeah. Your stuff's not too bad either. Um, and then finally, I'm Jeremy Parrish, GameSpite on Twitter and Tumblr, and Toasty Frog on YouTube. My God, so many different names. Uh, you can find me at usgamer.net, and you can also find me at anatomyofgames.com and gameboyworld.com, which are little stupid things I do on the side, and they're fun and awesome and stuff. So anyway, that's us, and that was this episode, and we are going out with some cool slap bass from Seinfeld. Thanks for listening. <laughs>